When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, well, let's uh, just get started early. Lots of things going on, lots of things to talk about, but nothing more important than talking to you. Good morning, AJ. Good morning, Bob. Is everything going your way so far? Well, so far, everything was staying in its own lane driving in. I, I'm always pleased when things are going my way. I hear bad stories about when things are coming the opposite direction, but yeah, everybody was going the right direction and paying reasonable attention to the road, so it was uh, it was very pleasant getting started this morning. How about yourself? Oh, just fine, just fine. I've got a very light load for you this morning. Uh, are angel trumpets are they poisonous like the detura plant is? The if you're talking about the brugmansia, which is the angel trumpet that hangs down, they are not nearly so toxic as the datura. And they don't make those kind of spiny-looking seed balls. That's one of the more toxic things about them. They do have some toxicity to them, but it's not... Uh, I mean, the detures can be can be deadly. And the brugmansias, certainly less so. But it's, I'm not planning to prepare any of them for dinner this evening. All right, all right. Well, that that's my situation for this week, Bob. So I'm going to let you buy real easy today and... You have a good weekend. Well, you know the day is early, and you know how things tend to crop up. So if any situations arrive that I, I can help you solve, uh, you don't hesitate to call me back. Are you worried about uh, worried about uh, livestock or something getting into the uh, uh, Brugmansias or just general concerns? No. Uh, I've, I, ne- I knew the Datura was poisonous, right. and my wife went to a the convent over here in Victoria and the lady that takes care of the flower, she told her, she says, those things are very poisonous. So I've never heard, I didn't read anything about it. So I was going to get uh, a man from Bernie. His <laughs> Well, I'll check into it a little further, but to the best of my knowledge, uh, they are mildly toxic, but uh, not nearly so much so as the detures. But I'll very definitely get back to you on that because we certainly don't want any uh, situations to arise over in your part of Texas, AJ. It's always such a pleasure to hear from you early in the morning. All right. Well, now I got to take Miss Daisy out of town today, so everything's situation's going to be at a minimum, I believe. Well, then you enjoy, and uh, we'll look forward to our next visit. See you later, Bob. All right, sir. Thank you so much. Ah, uh, let's see. Clint is up next. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. Got a quick question for you. Yes, sir. I got some celebrity tomatoes in the ground, and this uh, second time last year had the same thing. The color doesn't come out of bright red. It comes it comes like it's splotchy and sunburnt, like the red hadn't filled in completely from the original color. Any yeah, idea what's going wrong with that? Usually that is a matter of stink bugs. Um, they, they, in effect, where they bite or stick their proboscis, as the case is, down into the tomato, it interferes with the normal pigmentation. I get a little bit of a spinosad soap, 
and I would give them a spraying, I think you'll find that uh, um, that you'll take care of them and you'll get a much better fruit. Uh, usually it's the case that not only does the is the color uneven, but where you have the lighter colored areas, you tend to have a little bit more of a hard spot underneath. Have you noticed that at all? You know, I haven't eaten any of them yet. I'm just kind of disappointed where they look and stuff, so I haven't tried it. Are they still safe to eat? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. But, uh, no, that sounds to me, I've seen it uh, way too often, but it's it can be the green stink bug or the brown stink one, bug. Either one of them will do it. It's a little early for that leaf-footed bug, but uh, uh, I just carry, you know, I keep a little the the... Spinosad soap comes either as it's out this year as a concentrate as well as a little RTU they call it ready to use. It's that little hand sprayer, and uh, pretty much when I'm working in the garden in tomato season, that's in one hand, and I'm picking with the other hand because uh, what you're sound, what you're describing to me sounds like a little bit of stink bug damage. Um, and as I say, you may find some little tough spots here and there in the tomatoes, but there's certainly nothing wrong with the uh, with the quality of the fruit overall. Any particular brand name on that? And that that is the uh, well. It's actually the company that makes it is called Natural Guard. Uh, they're a division of the Fertilone people, but the product is just called Spinosad soap. And it's just a. Uh, okay. it, but but the name you will see on there. You have to search for the other names, but you'll see the name Spinosad soap, and it's just a good insecticidal soap with some of uh, the Spinosad in it. And both of those, of course, are totally safe for people and animals. I you know rinse the tomatoes off before I put them into the salad, but uh, this is not anything you have to wait X number of days before you pick or anything like that. It doesn't doesn't get much safer, and yet it's it's about the most effective thing I've ever found against squash bugs and stink bugs and uh, all that little group of creatures that I'm afraid are going to be pretty prevalent this year with all the moisture. moisture. Now, does it kill them or just repel them? It kills them. It kills them. doesn't kill them instantly. Now, you'll see the little larval state is going to be a little red-looking creature with black legs, and it will kill those very quickly. The adult, it may take, uh, you know, two, three days, but they stop causing problems almost immediately. It sickens them immediately, and then they die within a you know day or two. Okay. And a couple of weeks ago, you, uh, some guy called in, I don't know if it was legal to grow hemp, and I guess it's going going through Texas uh, legislature. you know if Abbott was going to sign it, or did he, did yeah. he heard anything along those lines? Well, it's, uh, to the best of my knowledge, he hasn't signed the bill yet. I call my sheriff friend and also my police chief friend up in Kendall County, and here's here's the way they view it. Um, the feds say as long as it contains less than point, uh, 0.3% THC, uh, you know, the, the two basic compounds in marijuana or in hemp of all sorts, or CBD, which is the one that provides the great majority of the medical benefits that uh, we see in both people and animals. And then there's a THC, which is the psychogenic, whatever they call it, the uh, uh, the one that that gets you high, literally. And the feds, in one of their documents in their ag bill, say up to 0.3% is okay. But then in a separate federal, federal statute, it says any amount of THC is illegal. Uh, in Texas, unless or until the bill gets signed, any amount of THC is illegal. And our sheriff says that uh, what his deputies were instructed is if somebody's growing hemp, 
simply take a sample of it. They send it off to the lab for testing. And as long as it comes back without THC, you're in the clear. If it comes back with any uh, detectable THC levels that you will be cited and potentially arrested. So uh, it, it would pay anyone who's going to grow it to have their own independent testing done just to be sure you don't run afoul of the law of this at this point. But uh, I'll keep monitoring it, and I'll uh, um, you know let you know when I hear or learn anything else. But uh, uh, right now, it's uh, a lot of it is up to the individual jurisdictions and how they're going to enforce it. But uh, as far as the feds are concerned, up to 03 percent is the general policy that they are enforcing on that. So. Um, anybody going into industrial hemp production needs to, uh, you know, needs to be watching it very carefully. Envisioning with Howard Garrett, apparently they're doing some consulting on some people that are doing it on a commercial basis. And what they're finding is that the guys that are growing organically, like everything else that grows so well organically, they're, uh, they're pushing the limits because their hemp is producing more of everything and they're having to watch it even more closely. But, uh, um, right now, I doubt that you would really have a lot of problems if you stay below that 0.3% mark. But again, it just depends on the individual jurisdiction and uh, uh, under state law, they can still prosecute for any detectable THC at all in your hemp. So you want to be real careful what you're growing. You probably do your own independent testing so that you can fall back on that if they should take a sample that comes out a little bit different. But um, it, it's just something we're going to have to watch very carefully. I'll let you know I'm tracking some other bills in the legislature re- relating to water uh, legislation, so I'll try to keep an eye on that one and let you know how that comes out. I sure hope you find it. But how in the world would you make sure your plant doesn't produce more than what you want? Well, you just have to send it off to the same independent testing lab that the law enforcement's oh. going to use. So um, yeah. a lot starts with what strain you're growing or anything else. But it's, uh, you know, it's it's just like a lot of other things. It's one of those things that you want to be careful with. And the spirit of the law, the letter of the law may be two different things. And you just have to... Um, you know, if I were doing it, I would, I would call the sheriff and say, Hey, I would like, uh, to volunteer. I would like you to take some of this stuff and test it for me. Um, just so I don't have to pay the testing fees and you tell them, Hey, I, I want to stay legal on this and I need your help to be sure I'm doing so. And if your local peace officers are as great as ours are in Kendall County, I think you work out just fine. If it comes in too high, you you will have to have to do something about that. But, uh, you know, as, as long as you're up front with it, as long as you're not, you know, hiding it in the back 40 and putting barbed wire fences around it and then claiming that you're doing it for uh, medical uses only, I, I think you'd be, I think as long as you're open and honest with it, I doubt if it's ever going to be a problem to you. All right, well, All right, your phone's cutting out on us, Clint, but it's always good to talk to you. Let me get Fidel in here, and then it will be James and Lynn. Good morning, Fidel. How you doing, Bob? I'm well. How is everything in Bandera County? He's getting uh, Doing great and enjoying the west side of Medina Lake. It's nice and full. It's... And I think the people over in the Lake Hills area are enjoying this, especially the business people. Well, a lot of activity on the lake now. That's uh, it's a big change from what it was not long ago. So we'll hope it stays there, and we'll hope these good rains continue. That's right, Bob. I have a question. I have a uh, two sages 
sage bushes that I bought here about a year ago. I think it's their Silverado sages. Okay, yeah. Okay, and I planted them. They were doing real good. They went through the winter and everything else, and all of a sudden they dropped the majority of their leaves, and they both have, you know, a little bit of them left, uh, but the new ones aren't coming out or anything. Uh, uh, what kind of a problem do I have with that? It is almost certainly a water problem. Now, we, of course, as you well know, we have had a good deal of rain this uh, spring and early summer, but I don't know about you, but I have not gotten very many soaking rains. I, you know, I've been getting two 100s here and four 100s here, so I, you know, everybody would be likely to jump the gun and say, uh, they're just staying too wet with all the rain. It could just as easily be that they are not getting enough water because it takes an inch, inch and a half of rain to really thoroughly soak that root ball. So I'm going to be watering those plants really deeply and thoroughly on about a weekly basis. And uh, I I think it's 100% water related. And um, where the leaves are dropping, it is more often too little water than too much. But you're just going to have to check your own individual situation. Have you been watering regularly, or have you been relying on the rainfall to give them what they need? No, uh, no, I, I've been watering them regularly, and I saw this happen maybe about uh, about a month ago. Uh huh. And I, I water them like uh, every two or three days. No, you're watering them way and too often. Way too, too often. often. Yes, sir. They've been often. in the ground what six months or so. Oh no, they've been in the ground about a year. Yeah. No, you. I would say once a week. Uh, at the very most, and if we do get significant rains, it would be less than that. I would, next time they need water, I would add some Garrett juice. I might add some Super Thrive to uh, try to help those roots get reestablished. But uh, if you're watering that off, they're very definitely staying too wet. Yeah. Okay, uh, I'll go ahead and do that and sort of slow down the watering. Another question that I have, I've got some uh, Mexican birds of paradise. Right. And last year, man, it looks like they didn't start growing until around July or something like that. And so far this year, they they apparently froze back. But I had them well mulched and everything. But I see everybody else is already in the bloom and everything. So I don't know if mine are gone or what. They ought to be coming out by now. Mine are not anywhere near in bloom um, the ones I see mostly in bloom are in San Antonio where, you know, it just stayed somewhat warmer. Uh, the biggest of mine are probably six to eight inches tall. So I would expect to see some, uh, some growth coming out on them. But, um, the ones that are really blooming well, maybe new plants that just got put in or plants that, uh, for whatever reason, um, you know, it, and the other thing is that early winter, we've been, we've had fairly wet mid to late spring, but January, February, December, those were pretty dry months. And if they dried out too much over the winter months, they will be slower to come back. But uh, I'd sure be expecting to see some growth coming out on them at this point. Yeah. <clears throat> Yesterday, Bob, I was over at the HEB in San Antonio, and I noticed a jackfruit uh, it looks like a elongated uh, small watermelon. Right. But it's got a bunch of structures. Looks like little spines on them. Right. Uh, what's uh, what's tell me something about that fruit? They're a tropical fruit. I uh, know down in the Rio Grande Valley, um, there are some folks that grow a few of them, but we're just too cold for them here in the hill country. You could grow them in a greenhouse or something, but I don't think it would really be worthwhile. 
Uh huh. But what do they taste like? Or you're going to have to buy one and taste it. I'm afraid that's one. I remember having had a sample of it. We were at a conference years ago in this uh, nursery down there called Rivers Inn Nursery that grows of a lot of exotics. Brought everything in the world in these things, and we tasted. But quite frankly, we tasted so many different ones kind of all ran together, and it didn't make enough of an impression, good or bad, on me that I said, hey, this is something I need to do more often. So uh, I, you're going to have to try for yourself and report back to me, and I'll learn from you. Okay. Okay, Bob, well, I appreciate it. You have a good rest of the weekend. You do the same, Fidel. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, going to talk to James next, and it will be Lynn. Good morning, James. How are you, sir? Morning, Bob. How you doing? Oh, today, just uh, the weekend's off to a good start. Well, that's great. Hey, I called with a question or two this morning. Uh, everybody's asking. Uh, they said Bob's saying that we need to get an earlier start on the tomato transplants, and they're asking me, well, how big of a transplant, and when do I set them out? So that is my question to you for fall tomatoes. Well. I the tomatoes that I have planted late June uh, have always done better for me than the ones that get planted late July. I would target you know June fifteenth for people who have a source of transplants. That's the time. I've just now gotten my fall tomatoes uh, seed planted, so for me it's probably hopefully by the first of July I'll have some little transplants to set out. But I just find oh. that if you if you get them in in June before that weather just hits, you know, the super super hot season, uh, mine have just always done better, James. Well, I started some celebrities the first week in uh, in May and. Yeah. They're 16 inches tall and 16 inches wide. Those are going to be too big, aren't they? Well, I, you know, I think I'll probably just go ahead and plant them as soon as you can. I don't think that's too big. And I have to tell you, my spring tomatoes, some of the ones that are doing best are some that I'd let get, you know, a little overgrown. And I just kind of laid them down and did that trench method of planting. And my gosh, those things have made beautiful plants and starting to come into production. I'll tell you one thing that that I learned this spring, and it's just because I had more on my plate that I should have taken on, but I was probably three weeks later than usual in putting my tomato transplants out. And knock on wood, I have had zero early blight problems. Most everybody I know that got them out late February, early March when we aim at, uh, there are a lot of folks out there fighting early blight like mad. So I'm thinking, you know, uh, that I may start planting my spring tomatoes a little later and I'll start planting my fall tomatoes a little earlier um, and, uh, and and just see how that works out. But uh, I would, Kelly, I'm, you're, you know, well, you are a good grower, but 16 inches tall is pretty big. I wouldn't keep them in pots any longer. I'd be putting them in the ground uh, this weekend yeah. if possible. That's what I'm thinking. I uh, I've got them in root makers, so yeah. I mean, they can stay, you know, for a while in the root makers, and they're not going to, you know, they're going to be all right. But I'm kind of looking for a, a date to start these uh, fall tomatoes because they grow so fast. Yeah. I think the first week in May might be a little bit early for me. I think I. Uh, the middle of May would yeah, be Yeah, I right. think, I would think from, uh, as the way you're growing, sometime around the 15th, 
15th to the 20th of May, sometime right after Mother's Day, would be about the best for a professional like yourself. Us home gardeners that uh, don't have, you know, quite the same growing setup, uh, maybe earlier in May is fine, but for, for the pro who who does it right every time, yeah, I think middle of May is going to be pretty ideal. Have, have you got your uh, shade cloth up over your uh, earlier tomatoes yet? No, I haven't. And I haven't seen really any need to. Now, I'll be watching them this weekend because, you know, this is supposed to be our first really hot weekend. But uh, my tomatoes are as beautiful as I have ever grown. And uh, they're not quite as big as they usually are when I get them in early. But they're starting to produce well. They are that deep, lush green and uh, extraordinarily vigorous. I'm getting probably... Oh, six, eight inches of growth a week out of them. So uh, I I haven't put the shade cloth on. I, you know, in the garden pretty much every afternoon, and it just uh, hadn't hadn't been necessary yet. Now, if it keeps up, you know, above 100 and back to sunnier days, that's the thing. We continue to have a lot of cloudy days, and uh, I just I just haven't been in, in, in any rush to put it out. What about you? Well, the thing is, Bob, if I take the plastic off, I've got to have something on there because, I talked to a gardener yesterday that, and I'm sure we had 50, 50 mile, five mile an hour winds. He lost every tomato, and they even blew the leaves off his tomato plant. So I've got to have something on those hoop houses to um, keep the hail and the, sure. the high winds off. So and you're you're putting on plastic comes off. Something's got to go back on. And you're putting on thirty percent shade when it goes on. Yes, sir. I would I would go ahead and do that any time. Uh, I sure wouldn't go with 60%. I wouldn't go with a denser shade, but 30%'s not going to be bad to put on any time now and uh yeah, it's uh I'm glad your hoop houses are still there with that uh kind of winds that we got on Thursday afternoon, but uh yeah, I I wouldn't hesitate to put the shade out at this point, James. I don't think you'd be hurting a thing and you may just be a little bit ahead of the curve. It may we may all be putting it on within the next week or 10 days. We're just going to have to watch this weather and see what it does. These gardeners I talked to are just having a terrible time. This one gardener got hail on his tomatoes three times last year and twice this year. So I think the the wise grower is going to invest in some kind of uh, hail protection. I mean, oh, yeah. it's just it's year after year after yeah. year we're getting hail, and if you don't do something about it, you're not going to be picking very many tomatoes. Yeah, I put a big I put a big square hardware cloth on top of mine, and then the shade too. But uh, hey, listen, I'm going <coughs> to me put you on hold. We can go on if you want, but I have to go to news. This is KTSA Radio, San Antonio, Texas. All right, well, back to the phone lines, and Lynn is up first. Good morning, Lynn. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, you talk about come free all the time. Yes. And do you know where you can get any? I uh, you know we have it at Shades of Green. I think most nurseries have access to it from some of the growers. So uh, um, I know it's out there. There are times that it's hard to hard to come by, but I was looking at a couple of flats of it sitting out there a little earlier this week. So um, I would I would ask your whatever nursery you usually buy from. It's one of those herbs you're probably not going to find sitting on the shelf at HEB or Home Depot, but uh, any good nursery probably will have comfrey available for you. Well, I've called a couple of them, but I can't find it. I'm closer to New Braunfels. 
I hate to go into San Antonio. I hate to say that because I have to use 281 North. Well, I totally agree with you. I I make that drive five days a week, and uh, I just yeah. do it very early in the morning, and I just you know just take a take a calm pill for the drive home because man, it's. Uh, the traffic is, as they say, mobility is quite an issue. But uh, if you have friends in San Antonio who driving back and forth or coming up to New Braunfels, uh, I know it is available here. Call Old Weston over at the plant house and uh, tell him it's out there. He needs to get some of it for you. Okay. Well, I can, I'll keep trying. <clears throat> I can get it online, but... I- you know, no, I wouldn't. I wouldn't do that. I I think locally grown plants are so much better, and comfrey can be a little temperamental when you first plant it, but once it gets established and growing, it's just pretty much bulletproof as long as you give it a little water every now and then. I mean, my puppy dogs tend to walk through it, lie down on it, break it off, and it just keeps coming back stronger than ever. So um, get it started and uh, protect it in the early early stages of it and it takes the winters it takes the summers and boy it sure does have a lot of good beneficial properties oh well is it okay to keep it in a pot you can it's a little bit uh you know you have to watch your watering a little bit more carefully in a pot i've always found that it grows bigger and faster in the ground but uh i've also seen and and have in the past grown i do a fairly big pot i do at least your 10 or 12 inch pot but yes you can grow comfrey very well in a pot that size well is it deer proof no it is deer resistant as most herbs are um i'm about convinced although i have a friend uh, in the in the business told me that these new little dwarf periwinkles that are on the market now, he said, these are deer proof. He said, in my yard, the deer walk right by them. They don't even look at them. So maybe that's a deer proof plant. But anything that's green, I'm going to tell you, it's deer resistant. Uh, the deer may not be able to resist taking a taste of it, but they're sure not going to eat it down to the ground. It's uh, apparently got a flavor they don't care for. Okay, well, I'll keep trying. I'll keep checking back with the nursery to see if I can see where they get some in they do say they do get it occasionally but not regularly well tell them it's available and they should be able to find it because i know we've been getting it pretty regularly and uh, if you just have to make that trip into san antonio stop by and say hello oh i sure will i have one other question uh will uh i've been using spinosad to get rid of scale mm-hmm is it a, uh, and I have some uh, neem oil also. Is that just as good or use a spinosad or not quite? You know, I think the neem is probably even more effective than spinosad at getting rid of scale because it does have some systemic properties. Uh, the two problems with neem that are not an issue with spinosad, it can be what we call phytotoxic. In a sunny spot, neem can burn. So you have to be real careful on using neem to use it early in the day or late in the day when you don't have a lot of intense sunlight. The other thing about neem is that it has a very limited shelf life. It only lasts, when you open it, it's only going to last for maybe six months or so. Spinosad has a shelf life probably of three or four years. So if you're relying on neem to control scale, you need to be sure you've got a very good fresh bottle and you need to be sure you're using it in the cooler part of the day. But... Uh, um, I, I would have to say that I think the neem is probably even more effective against scale and mealybugs than spinosad is. If I were using spinosad, I'd very definitely be using the spinosad soap because that insecticidal soap is one of the things that really makes it uh, 
uh, much more effective. What what it has to do is largely smother the scale insect. A mealybug is just like an unarmored scale. So uh, I think that soap really is important if you're using the spinosad to get good control. But uh, like I say, neem's been the standard for a long time before we had the spinosad soap available. Okay. Well, thank you very much. I'll... Uh, I have some uh, neem oil, and uh, I didn't know which one was, but I have both. So. Yeah. Well, as long as your neem is good and fresh, it will do a good job for you. But I'm a big one. Uh, any product, the day you open the bottle, the day you unzip the bag, write that date on there because, my gosh, it seems like time goes by in a hurry, and that neem just doesn't keep on the shelf. And uh, if we're going to be spraying uh, something stinky like that, we want to be sure it's doing the good job. Okay, and when you say open, I have the spray bottle. Yeah. Does that mean the when you when you first start using it, um, six months from that date, you probably need to be getting some fresh. Okay. 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 Well, thank you very much. You've uh, solved my problems. Well, at least I hope I've pointed you in the right direction. You have a wonderful weekend, Lynn. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. All right. Next up is Laverne. Good morning, Laverne. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing this morning? It's a beautiful day. Yes, it is. It's the only cool part of the day. I feel sorry for people that don't get up and out early because they truly miss the best part of the day here in South Texas. They really do. They really do. Well, I have a couple of questions for you. First off, um, we have a, a garden out here. We've got tomatoes and we have stink bugs. And my husband was wondering um, what you could spray or do for the stink to get rid of the stink bugs. That will not harm our honeybees. We have honeybees. You know, the best thing, well, first of all, um, the honeybees are not going to be attracted to your tomatoes. Uh, they will be attracted to squash. They'll be attracted to cucumbers. But tomatoes are wind-pollinated, and they have not evolved, you know, putting any kind of scent or any kind of uh thing in it that the honeybees would be looking for so the honeybees are not likely to be hanging around your tomato plants much if you have your tomato plants a little bit isolated from uh, the other things in your garden the best you know if you want to be a hundred percent safe the best way to go after the stink bugs is with that little handheld vac vacuum like we used to call them dust busters but there are a bunch okay. of different ones out there and that still gets a lot of use in my garden and it's a, it's a great way to uh, there there's something very satisfying about watching that stink bug go down the nozzle of that thing and <laughs> i just you know I, i'll wait until i've got a fair number of them in there and then i simply take it off and shake it into a bucket of soapy water and that's the end of those stink bugs so the safest thing would be something like a little dustbuster um if you uh want to spray with something insecticidal soap is totally safe for the bees as long as you're not spraying it directly on them beyond that most anything out there including spinosad potentially could leave a residue that would be harmful to the bees but um again i would i would be very cautious about spraying cucumbers or uh even beans things like that that the bees may be going to but the bees watch your tomato plants the bees are not likely to be on your tomato plants so um, you could probably get away with using the spinosad soap, and that's the main thing other than the dustbuster that I use, uh, you know, against the stink bugs because they sure, the stink bugs sure are a problem. They really are here, too. Well, thank you very much, Ma. 
let him try that. Is uh, the garlic water doesn't do anything for him? Doesn't seem to do much about stink bugs. Works great against aphids. Works great against thrips. Uh, I, the liquid seaweed is another good thing to be spraying with with some regularity because it uh, uh, works against the spider mites and a number of other things. But the blasted stink bugs, just there's there's very little uh, other than the thumb and forefinger that uh, <laughs> as, as a lady that worked for me years ago used to say, and this is actually when she was stomping on a snail or something, she'd do that and then she'd say, he won't have the guts to do that again. And uh, so that's, you know, I, that's what happens to squash bugs and things in my gardens. But uh, um, and the stink bugs are an issue. And the little ones, they, we just call leaf-footed bugs. They show up, they're kind of gray with that kind of beige stripe across the top of the wings. Man, those things, uh, they are so fast uh, that that's where that little vac comes in real handy. It uh, it kind of directs them down the nozzle when they try to take <laughs> off. So uh, it might be a good Father's Day item, considering that that is coming right up. And uh, yes, it is. Yeah, that'd be that'd be a good thing to make gardening a little bit better around your household. Okay, well, thank you so much, and you have a wonderful day. You do the same, Laura, and thank you so much for the call this morning. Thank you. Certainly. Bye-bye. Goodbye. All right, back to gardening and back to the phone lines. All those lines are taken now, so hang on a minute before you call. We're talking to Sid, Shirley, John, and Jerry in that order. And Sid's up first. Good morning, Sid. Well, good morning. Morning, sir. Uh, I have a question about uh, identification of uh, poison ivy and poison oak. Is there a difference? The difference is it's somewhat in the shape of the leaf and also in the habit of growth. Uh, poison ivy is very definitely a vine, and it's going to be kind of reddish stem and, you know, the typical three-leaf pattern. Poison oak will look the same, except that the leaves are slightly more rounded. The little kind of points on the edges, they're sort of a scalloped leaf edge on the poison oak. It's more kind of a little rounded uh, edges of the leaves, but they're still going to be in exactly that same three-leaf pattern, but they're going to be a little bit bushier. They're going to be more kind of shrubby in their growth, where the poison ivy is most definitely a very rapidly growing vine. Both of them contain the same toxin in the leaves, which uh, will certainly deal you misery if you're not careful. Okay, now... Uh... Virginia creeper, isn't that sort of similar? It is similar, but Virginia creeper will usually have five leaflets rather than three. Virginia creeper, um, golly, it just uh, once you've seen the two side by side, you won't ever mistake them. But there are almost always five little leaflets to a cluster on Virginia creeper. And there are several other. That group is called the Parthenocystis group. But uh, they almost always have five leaves to a group, whereas on the poison ivy, it's always three leaves. Virginia creeper has a little bit thicker stem, uh, not quite as smooth, not quite as red as poison ivy, but the leaves are the dead giveaway. Once, you've, once you put the two of them side by side, uh, you won't ever confuse them. And how do you get rid of them? Uh, now, that's a much more difficult question. What I do is, you know, because because the poison ivy makes such a big vine, uh, it's just not practical to spray the whole thing. I will cut it off at ground level, and then when it starts coming out, I'll start spraying with that vinegar or orange oil. About the third or fourth time you spray it, it just gives up and dies. 
Now, if you're handling it at all, be sure you're wearing something like dishwashing gloves, not your weather, uh, leather work gloves. Leather will absorb that toxin and uh, uh, can stay in there for some time. You want a slick, rubbery glove that you can wash off if you're handling it. And also never put the clippings in your burn pile. The smoke is very poisonous if you're burning, burning uh, poison ivy or poison oak. But I, I very carefully cut it off, pull out all I can, and then when it starts sprouting back out, I'll hit it with that vinegar-orange oil mix, and uh, it'll burn it back two or three times, and then it just stops coming out. And uh, how do you mix the vinegar and orange oil? Get the strongest vinegar you can. If you're getting it at the grocery store, get the 9% they call pickling vinegar. Uh, nurseries will have it up to 20% strength. And you always mix two ounces of orange oil to a gallon of vinegar. Now, don't mix up more than you need because it'll blow the cap off your sprayer. You only want to mix up what you need and then wash your sprayer out. But like two tablespoons to a quart of vinegar um, and just get out there and spray. You're not soaking the ground. You're just coating the foliage thoroughly. But two tablespoons to the quart, two ounces to the gallon, and then add just a little squirt of dish soap, and it works um, kind of like Roundup, but a whole lot faster and many, many times safer. Okay. And uh, is the Virginia creeper poisonous also? Not at all. Not at all. It's a nuisance, but it is a. it has beautiful fall color. And I tend to just pull it out. Where it comes out, uh, you know, I just, you know, grab it again with just old leather work gloves or whatever, pull it up. It likes to climb up my windmill. I don't know why it seems to want to go up the, the iron, you know, tower, but uh, you just have to keep after it, pulling it out three or four times, so you'll usually get it, get a, get it under control. Okay. All right. Well, very good. Well, uh, it's going to be a beautiful day. It's just going to be mighty hot it is going to be very hot uh you probably got a fair rain the other day my business partner lives just south of you on edge falls road and uh you guys in the central eastern part of kendall county you've had a little bit more rain than those guys of us in the western kendall county so your uh your grass should be growing your cows should be fat and happy and uh it's just a a good day in the neighborhood so to speak we had 1.3 Oh, man, you're making me jealous. You you let a little bit of it fall on us Westerners before it all comes your way next time. Okay. Thanks, Thanks. Sid. Good to talk to you. Thank you, all sir. Right. Bye. All right, uh, Shirley's up next. Good morning, Shirley. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Uh, I have a problem for the first time with these little gnats uh, in oh, my yeah. um, pots. Okay. How do I get rid of them? Well, first of all, let your soil run a little drier. Uh, those are called fungus gnats, and they are usually a sign that you're watering a little too often, keeping the soil a little too wet. The way that you can kill them safely, uh, the bacterial product that we call BTI, it's the uh, form of Bacillus thuringiensis we use to kill mosquito larvae. Uh, it yeah, okay. also, yeah, it also kills the fungus gnat larvae. If you're using the granules or if you're using the little dunks that have the BTI, just soak a bit of it in your watering can. Use that water to water your plants, and it will kill the fungus gnat larvae in the soil of your house plants. Now, the adults, it'll take a few days for them to all die out. But uh, the BTI, as far as, you know, being something you can pour onto the soil to kill them very effectively, uh, that's the thing you want to use. Now, a lot of people also get these little gnats, they call sewer gnats, that come out of the drains on the sinks and places like that. 
Right. If you ever get those, just get some of the orange oil. I like Medina's brand. They they have some of the strongest, purest orange oil out there. Just when you finish doing dishes or things, just put maybe a quarter of a teaspoon or so down the down the sink. You've got that little U-shaped thing they call a P-trap that actually stays full of water. It does have to keep sewer gases from coming back up through the sink, but that's where your sewer gnats like to live and breed. Man, that uh, orange oil kills them almost instantly and is very pleasant smelling as well. Yeah, I use it for cleaning too. So, yes, I do have some. Okay, now the BTI, um, Uh like in a quart of water, how much do I put in it? Well, the BTI is always going to come in a dry form. One of these days we'll have a liquid form of BTI, but right now it's just too expensive. But if you're using the uh, little things they call mosquito bits, they look kind of like little red uh, red pepper flakes. Um, Yeah, I have the granule ones. I do. Yeah, I put about a teaspoon in there. I'd let it soak for oh, six to ten hours, and then just use that to water your plants, and uh, you should have no more fungus snap problems. Okay, now... My tom- I have uh, my big tomatoes. I have three different varieties, and I can't even tell you right now which ones they are. But they have tomatoes on. Okay, will they? Will I get some more tomatoes on those, or with this heat, will they stop producing? You will. It will certainly ripen all the tomatoes you have. It's not the daytime temperatures that matter. It's the nighttime temperatures. It was 68 at my house this morning up in the hill country, and even though the afternoons are very hot. The mornings are still cool, and at, you know, 70, 70, up to 75, you're still going to get plenty of tomatoes set. When we get to the point that those night temperatures aren't dropping much below 80 degrees, that's when the fruit set is going to really slow down. So for now, I think you're in pretty good shape. You should continue to set tomatoes. Okay, good. That sounds great. Well, thank you, Bob. Well, (laughs) have a a wonderful day. It's my pleasure, and you do the same, Shirley. We'll talk again. Bye. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be John, Jerry, Liss, and Janice. Uh, Good morning, John. Hey, Bob. Good morning. Good morning to you, sir. How are you? I'm just doing well. How about yourself? Super duper. Thanks for asking. Certainly. Hey, uh, snails and fleas. Okay. What can I put on the yard to help uh, combat those critters? Well, for fleas, by far the most effective thing to use uh, would be the beneficial nematodes. And having had some pretty good rains, I think you all got pretty good rains this past week too, didn't you? Yes, sir. Yeah. the Your beneficial nematode needs a film of water to move when you first put them out to find the fleas to get well dispersed through the soil. Once they are out, if there's enough moisture in the soil to support plant life, then there's plenty to keep the nematodes going. But uh, right now is a perfect time to put out the live beneficial nematodes. They will control fleas 100% along with fire ants and grub worms and a lot of other things. Every time I have used them for fleas, and I've, I need to put some out. Uh, we did not get the good rains this past week, but next wet spell I'll be putting them out. But I've, I've been able to go for probably two to three years before I I had to use them again against fleas. So um, live beneficial nematodes are what I will recommend to you most highly for those. Snails and slugs, 
There is a product out there called Sluggo, S-L-U-G-G-O. It is an iron phosphate bait. It is much safer than the old poisonous uh, metaldehyde baits that used to just call bug bait. I mean, those things are teaspoons enough to kill a small dog. The Sluggo is totally harmless to people and pets. I use the form that is called Sluggo Plus because they add a little bit of spinosad and it controls pill bugs as well. But snail slugs, pill bugs, look for Sluggo Plus uh fleas fire ants that sort of thing uh your beneficial nematodes are going to do the job for you awesome blossom are you about it your puppy and dogs and your kitty cats will say thank you very much and uh appreciate the call this morning oh bob one yeah. more thing yes sir do you have a nursery out my way that you could recommend i wish i did um there are, you know, there are a couple of uh, decent ones, uh, Austin area, but Kyle, I I don't know anybody up that way. I'll make some inquiries. We've got a couple of our uh, uh, reps from some of the wholesalers, and I'll, I'll ask them who they think's best up in that area and see if I can get a name for you, but um, I, I sure don't have one. You might go to dirtdoctor.com, Howard Garrett's website. Uh, they maintain a pretty good list of folks that uh, do it right, do it organically. Awesome. Let me let me tell you one more thing. I think the best source of the beneficial nematodes, uh, they're a company out of Colorado Springs that is called Hydro Gardens, H-Y-D-R-O. You might call them and ask them who they sell to in your area, and they can almost certainly give you a name of someone that's likely to have uh, their good products and have them fresh. So that would be one other place to call to get a good recommendation. All right, Bob. Appreciate you. Appreciate your call this morning. You get out and have a great weekend. You Thank, too, brother. Thanks, John. <laughs> Bye. Okay, Jerry's up next. Good morning, Jerry. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Uh, I have a question about shredding and about kind of trying to reclaim a coastal field that died out last summer and, and uh, was overgrazed prior to that. Okay. When we bought the place. Yeah. Uh, we had a good, good fall, really good fall, and then spring's been pretty good, too. Uh, didn't get in to shred too early, and the sunflowers, the wild sunflowers took over. And now, or the thistles, I'm sorry, the wild thistles started taking over first. They're starting to die out, and okay. now we're starting to get horse mint and that kind of thing. Right. I wanted to shred it, but with it being summer coming on, I'm afraid we're going to lose, you know, quit raining. Would it be better to shred higher and just take the tops off? Yeah, and I would. Hold that moisture. Yeah, I, 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 no, I would shred higher. It's actually more water conservative. When you do, the, your your coastal will use less moisture, and yet you'll still get good growth. I would, if, do you have spray equipment? Can you spray that field? No, sir, I don't. Okay. I don't. We just bought the place a year ago, and I'm, I wasn't really ready when we got into it, and kind of bought more than what I really could handle. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. It uh, And it's like they say about us Texas ranchers, we don't want all the land in the world, just the land next to ours. And, uh, <laughs> but if you can borrow or rent or you invest the brand that i like is continental belt and is the i think one of the better sprayer companies but spraying with liquid molasses is the most cost effective thing you can do that really really does wonders for coastal and does a lot to suppress weeds and you only use about five gallons per acre which means that you're you know, you're a fraction of the cost of uh, a lot of different things. But if you can find a way, I mean, dry molasses is great, but for 
the amount of product you get, it is much, much more expensive. But uh, if you can find a way to start spraying uh, liquid molasses, I would do it every time you cut that field. If you're baling hay, I do it two or three times a year if you're just grazing it. But uh, that would be one of the very best things you could do. Now, you've got some folks down that way that uh, um, are carrying some very reasonable cost organic fertilizer. This Viatrac fertilizer you hear advertised is a great product. And uh, I'm not sure in Pleasanton or P-Town, as an old aunt used to call it, um, I'm not sure somebody right there in Pleasanton, but I know... uh, um, Fred Morales and his good people at Morales Feed, they loan you the spreader no charge. As a matter of fact, he can deliver a spreader full of fertilizer to you, and uh, you simply hook it to the back of your uh, whatever whatever equipment you have to put it out and then take the empty hopper back to him and it is very very economical when you get ready to think about fertilizing but just getting into it trying to keep costs to a minimum if you've got anybody that will uh that will loan you a good sprayer liquid molasses is not going to cause or plug or cause any problems whatsoever to the sprayer and that's going to do more to help you reclaim that coastal field than anything i can think of Okay. We didn't do a whole lot this, this last uh, fall or spring because, like I said, it had been overgrazed so badly. Sure. And, and and the coastal is coming back. It is coming back on its own just by letting us rest it. Sure. Well, uh, I just, I, sure I, would, I would shred it high just to get a little more light down to the coastal. But by leaving the, by shredding high, you've left the maximum amount of leaf surface area, which means you're, uh, coastal is going to absorb more of the sun's energy, and you're going to uh, get a faster regrowth and a thickening up. Um, it's just the best thing you could do for the field. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. One other question, please. Yes. A big. I had to cut a big old oak tree. It just killed me to do it. Yeah. But it was too close to the house and leaning into the house. Uh-huh. Uh, we have a stump left over, and I know there's something called stump remover. It's like something you put with meat processing or something. Right. What what's the name of that actually? Is it off the store shelf or something? Well, like that? it's and it's just called by that name, stump remover. If you uh, um, if you have any place that you know carries uh, any sort of meat preserving products, uh, what is what it is is called potassium nitrate. I uh, used to buy it everywhere under the name of saltpeter. They put it in cattle feeds and things like that to, uh, shall we say, control some of the urges of some of the male animals. I guess that's the nicest way to put it. I understand they used to put it in their military's food when they were overseas in wartime and things like that. But saltpeter or potassium nitrate is the active ingredient in stump remover. The way it works, it converts that wood fiber. The wood fiber is something called cellulose. It converts that slowly into something called nitrocellulose. Nitrocellulose is uh, burns much more easily. It doesn't flame up, doesn't create a big flame. Highly processed nitrocellulose is what they use for powder and shotgun shells. But when you, you're going to drill a bunch of holes down into that old stump, um, you're going to fill them with saltpeter. In the case of a really hardwood tree like an oak, you may have to wait as much as six months. But then what you do is simply put a few charcoal briquettes on top, you light, and then it just smolders very slowly, smolders all the way down into the soil and, uh, and gets rid of the stump that way. Now, if the stump's got to be gone today, find somebody that has a stump, uh, what they call a stump grinder. This is a machine that sits down on top of the stump and literally chews it up about six inches down into the soil. 
and uh, that gets it out of sight. That gets it out of the way almost instantly. But you probably pay somebody between fifty and a hundred bucks to do that. The stump remover is slower, but it is certainly very effective. Would it if it's if it's in a cluster of trees and it's just one just one tree I wanted? Would it hurt any of the root system around it? It actually serves a lot of big old trees. Yeah, it's actually a fertilizer. Um, oh, okay. Yeah, it's it's not going to hurt your trees, your surrounding trees in any way, form, or fashion. Now, um, how long ago did you take down this tree? Just just last three days ago. Okay. Did you paint the stump? Yes, sir, we did. Okay, excellent. Man, you're good. Uh, so many people fail to recognize that you can actually get oak wilt in through a cut stump since those all those oaks have interconnected root systems. But uh, you're doing it right, Jerry. Proud of you. Yes, sir. Well, I appreciate you and your show, and and really love you. Really, really appreciate you, sir. Well, we are always here for you. You call anytime we can help, and uh, congratulations on your new place. Sounds like you got your work cut out for you. Yes, sir. Thank okay. you so much. Thank you, Jerry. Bye. All right, back to gardening. It's going to be Les, Janice, James, and Barbara, and uh, Les is up first. Good morning, Les. Hi, uh, Bob. I got a little info for that lady that's looking for the comfrey. Yeah. I found seed last year at Baker Creek. Okay, okay. And have you grown comfrey from seed? I've I've not been as successful germinating the seed. Did it do well for you? Yes, it did. I did. I had no problem. Okay, that's great to know. Yeah, Baker Creek is a great company. Uh, do a lot of stuff organically. Plus, they're just. Uh, I've heard uh, some of their, you know, some of their people presenting at some of the different uh, locations around. So, yeah, I'm a big fan of Baker Creek, and I'm really glad to know that uh, that they've got comfrey seed. I appreciate that, Les. Like I said, I found this last year. Excellent. Year, I don't know. And once you get it started, you've got it. <laughs> comfrey yeah. just. Uh, uh, it, it's easy to propagate to propagate by root di- root divisions once it's up and growing, but uh, like you discovered, you've got to get it started in the first place. And, uh, well, I'm glad Baker Creek helped you out. Yeah, that's, that's all I have. Okay. Well, listen, thanks for sharing, taking the time to, I and she really appreciate it. Uh, thank you. And Janice will be up next. Good morning, Janice. Um, good morning. Good morning. Um, I'll be a little bit unaware. I have a, a gift plant that is a, uh, combination of a um, white bird of paradise, mandevilla, and it had an asparagus fern in it. And I I didn't, I knew that the asparagus fern didn't really belong in there, but I don't really know what to do with the other, the mandevilla I've not had before. Okay, your, your phone is really hard to hear. If you're on a speakerphone, please go back to... Uh, Go back to your handheld. Now, uh, are you saying that all these things were in one pot, or this is just a collection of plants that you acquired? They were in one pot. Well, you're going to have to separate them out because uh, uh, White Bird of Paradise, for instance, is going to make a plant that grows about 12, 14 feet tall. Uh, It's an excellent plant. It's a good house plant if you have a fairly sunny window for it. But uh, it will, it, it's not going to take over immediately. It also can be grown on a patio so long as you bring it in when the weather gets really cold. Now, Mandevilla is a vine. It's going to have to go into its own pot 
Um, there are many forms. There's a pink one, a white one, a red one, but it needs a trellis or a fence or an arbor, something like that to grow on. It's tropical. It'll be really wants to be out in the spot. The perfect spot will be sun in the morning, shade in the afternoon, but it will have to come in when freezing weather approaches in the fall. And what else did you say was in that group? Um, it was, um, asparagus fern. I took that out because I thought... That didn't belong in there. Yeah, no. Asparagus fern uh, can grow in a pot or a hanging basket, or you can plant it in the ground. I don't know what to do with that, but the other two were just a mystery to me. Well, White Bird of Paradise, yeah, White Bird of Paradise, uh, it's called Strelitzia nicolii, if you want to look it up under its botanical. That's the name on the on the uh, tag yeah but it gets much bigger than the tropical bird of paradise and like i say this plant will grow 10 12 feet tall uh in california they use it outside where it doesn't freeze but um it would have to be in a very protected area and like i say the mandevilla is going to be a vining plant easy to grow absolutely gorgeous flowers but it will need a little stake or trellis or fence or something like that part of a trellis would i use for that what part of what now? What sort of a trellis? Uh, it can use? be can be anything. It could be a metal trellis. Could be a little wooden trellis. Uh, could be a you know piece of cattle panel. Uh, it just needs it just needs something to climb on. Anything that any vine would like um, will be fine for that. And both of those uh, need uh, winter protection. Yes, ma'am. They sure do, unless you're way down in South Texas. Yeah, I I can't imagine what I'm going to do. With the uh, the one that's ten to twelve feet tall. Well, for the time being, enjoy it because it's going to take it three or four years to get up to that size, and uh, uh, maybe the, by that time you live in a giant house, or at the very least, you can uh, give it to the botanical garden or trade it with a friend that has a higher ceiling. But uh, uh, it'll it'll stay. You can't really cut it back because the way strelitzia grows is a very upright plant but uh you've got three or four years to figure out what to do with it when it gets too big okay well i may not live that long so that's okay well i'm counting on you living a lot longer than that you uh you enjoy and call anytime we can help and let me get james in here before the news break good morning james let's see right there yes sir good morning i have a couple of questions okay uh, first off, I'm here in South Texas. Uh, I got those stickers in my yard. Yes, sir. I had them last summer too. You know the ones that on the stem on the very end of it. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. We call them a real pain in the grass. <laughs> what What is the name of those? Oh gosh, most people just call them grass burrs. Yeah. How do you get rid of them? Well, they're an annual grass. Every year they totally die in the winter, but those stickers are the seeds that are going to come back next year. I have found that if you, in the fall, if you put down a thin layer of compost, like half an inch of compost over the yard area, it thickens yeah. your grass, and it also serves as a natural pre-emergent. I had a, a section we used for a croquet court that's probably 30 feet by 60 feet, and yeah. that was so thick with sticker burrs, you could not walk in. The dogs avoided it. I put down that layer of compost, <laughs> The next spring, I think I pulled three sticker burrs the whole summer out of that spot. So, uh, really? yeah, uh, just, just, uh, unfortunately for the summer, all you can do is mow because anything that right. kills them would kill your good grass as well. But in the fall, that layer of compost, regular watering, uh, it does two things. The compost seems to serve as a natural pre-emergent, 
uh, that keeps them from sprouting next year, and it will thicken up your grass to the point it will do a good job of choking it out. Okay, so the thicker the grass is, it will eventually choke it out. Oh, yes, it will. Yes, it will. Okay, one other question. I got Bermuda and St. Augustine. Yes, sir. And, and they're kind of like growing together there. Okay. The St. Augustine is stringing down into the Bermuda. Okay. Uh, if you going to be king here? Well, if it's dry, the Bermuda's going to be happier. It's going to dominate. If you're able to water regularly, St. Augustine will dominate. St. Augustine likes plenty of moisture, oh, plenty of does, fertilizer. Yeah. If it's on the dry side, your Bermuda's going to win. If you keep it on the moist side, St. Augustine's going to win. And that's strictly up to you. All right. Well, phone lines are all full now. It's going to be Barbara, Richard, Mark, and Paul. Let's get started with Barbara. Good morning. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Um, my son bought a house in San Antonio, an older house, and it has some Mandina that's been there a long time. Okay. And he's trying to get rid of it in a certain area to put a, a little walkway. What do you recommend to get rid of it? A or at least keep it under control. A grubbing hole. It's, it, oh, you just have to dig it out. Yeah, you just have to dig it out. It, uh, it Nandana spreads by underground runners. Some of the old-fashioned ones are really invasive. I mean, they sprout up all around the mother plant. The newer ones, the better ones, are actually an excellent landscape plant, and uh, it kind of would depend on what he has. Uh, if it's just too big, he can dig out a part of it. Nandita doesn't really lend itself to cutting back to pruning as many plants do because the canes don't branch. They don't come out. But if you want to reduce the size, he could go through and take out a bunch of the taller canes. Uh, if it has made too big a clump, he could simply chop out a portion. And it's this not nearly as much work as it sounds like. It's uh, uh, don't, don't let mom volunteer to help him out. Let him do it himself. <laughs> But um, right. And if he wants to get rid of it completely, if it's one of the old original ones, um, maybe it would be better uh, to replace it with something else. But I really like some of the newer Nandinas. The compact forms, uh, there's some very low-growing ones. There's one called Harbor Bell, one called Harbor Dwarf that never get over about 12 or 15 inches tall. They're the compacta forms, which grow about three or four feet. They have beautiful fall and winter color and just nothing goes wrong with them so i think they're a great plant but uh if it's the wrong plant in the wrong place uh grub and hoe early in the morning would be a real good idea okay i think it looks like it's been cut back a little i think he wants to put stepping stones down okay so there is is there some orange oil or something you know that <clears throat> something he could spray on it just to kill the roots it's it's not Pretty effectively. Invasive. And it's the old. Yeah, it's the old. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. it is a tough, tough, woody plant, mm -hmm. and um, you'd end up burning the foliage, and it'd be coming right back out. So uh, the good okay. news is it doesn't have an especially deep root system, and uh, it's it, for me to get an old Nandina out of the ground is five minutes of hard work. But it's, uh, you know, where it's not like trying to dig out a Fotenia or something with a big, wide, woody root system. Uh, this is, it's very doable. What I would do, I'd start out by cutting it down to about six inches tall, leave enough up there that you can get a hold of it. But uh, then it's just, you know, go around the edges, working from the outside in. And uh, um, again, it's just, uh, it's, it's work, but five or ten minutes, the job is done. Well, that's encouraging. Thank you so much. What time is your nursery closed today? We are 9 to 5, 9 to 5 Monday through Saturday and 10 till 4 on Sundays. 
Okay, thank you very much. Let me tell Bye-bye. you one more thing oh. and tell him, uh, if he comes by sometime, we've got a number of free handouts that uh, we'd love to share with him. And if he's thinking of putting down stepping stones or something like that, do not make the mistake of putting down the stuff they call weed block fabric. Uh, that is really bad for the soil. It will, even if you're just putting mulch or something on top of it, it will not allow this to set up. A lot of people look at that and think, oh, weed block, what a what a miracle product. But it is a horrible product. And uh, just steer them away from that and tell them, um, well, with the new house, he's going to have lots of questions. But there are places uh, and people that would be happy to answer those questions and, and help him in a lot of different ways. We just want him to avoid making some of the common mistakes. Mm-hmm. All right. Thank you very much. You're certainly welcome. Thanks for calling. <laughs> Goodbye. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right. Uh, top of the board is Richard. Good morning, Richard. Good morning, Bob. Beautiful day out there. Yes, it is. It's going to get hot, but boy, right now it's just close to perfect. Summer is here. You're right. Well, I had a question about um, my Natchez blackberry, and uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on sweet wood drift. And so, uh, regarding the sweet wood drift, I wanted to explain, like, my my growing conditions, and I wanted to see if you could tell me if they'll actually grow here, because I did see some in your nursery, but um, I've heard mixed things about it. So my uh, my house faces the north, and uh, I have a six-foot section that runs alongside it on the east, and so it'll only get about two to four hours of direct sunlight. Mm-hmm. So I want to see if it would, if it's something that, that actually does okay down here in uh, New Braunfels area. Well, if you work a lot of organic material into the soil, um, you kind of have to baby it. It's not one of those tough Texas plants that will just simply take care of itself. Um, if it's an herb that you would enjoy having, it is possible to grow it, but it's not necessarily going to be my first choice unless you just specifically want that plant is it falls into the category of uh oh gosh a lot of things from azaleas to camellias to gardenias and if you really like them yes you can grow them but it's not a matter of just dig a hole and let it go yeah to your point i really i researched it and i found out that i really like it but just because you like something doesn't mean it'll grow here so yeah it's pretty tender and and you know there's a difference in survive and thrive and for someone that just really, really wants it, survive. Now, if you move to, you know, West Virginia or somewhere like that, it's going to be probably become a weed for you. But it's South Texas is not its native home. So uh, um, it's just it's one of those things. If you just really want to try it, you can grow it. But I'm, you know, there unless it's just a really special plant to you, I can think of some other things that would probably do better. I think your description fits the bill, and I think I'll just commit to Asian jasmine to give the same effect. Well, okay. that uh, or since it's shady, you know, you can always use dwarf monkey grass if you want something that grows faster, even though it has some insect problems. Uh, there's Vinca major and Vinca minor, but the reason Asian jasmine is so common is because it is so tough and hardy, and it's still probably number one ground cover just realize that it's uh, the old saying about ground covers the first year it sleeps the second year it creeps the third year it leaps i think that phrase was invented for asiatic jasmine because it will frustrate you getting started but once you've got it growing there's very little that'll ever cause it problems that makes sense i already have some experience with that i'm in year two so (laughs) very good Um, the uh natchez blackberry um i bought from uh phoenix and it was just about a uh, six months ago, and it was about, no, probably 10 months ago, and it was just uh, like a foot and a half stem. Yeah. 
And so I do know that what grows this year will be for next year and so on and so forth. But, Correct. Um, I already have, I've already gotten a few blackberries off of it, so the foliage has grown, and I guess it was an older plant than I thought. But how will I, de- I know that there's a, there's a way to determine what grows now. Um, you, can, you can prune back, but there's stuff that's growing on the ground and kind of up, and since it's only year one for me, how will I be able to most, will I need to wait till things uh, kind of die back to understand what next year's growth it's good and, and no. this year's growth it's bad no it's it's you know it and it never really truly dies back the canes that you're picking blackberries from those are last year's canes so anything you were able to pick fruit off of you might as well cut that back to the ground at the end of the productive season the things that are up and vigorously growing those are indeed the canes that will give you berries next year but uh the only you know the the most visible the easiest way to tell is simply which ones had flowers and fruit those are last year's canes so, okay so when i got the plant though it was just one bare stem so yeah. i guess Will it show itself what has what has blackberries and what what didn't? Because I'd have to keep track of that. Well, you pretty much that that one big stem is going to be what you're going to end up cutting out at the end of its productive season. You've probably got lots of new growth coming up around the base of the plant, don't you? Yes. Well, that's what's going to grow up for next year. That that big central cane that you started with when you planted it, uh, that's what you're going to prune out probably around the 1st of August, early September. Okay, that makes it a little easier. And remember, well, it's my pleasure. A lot of people do not water their blackberries enough. Blackberries can be very productive, very long-lived, but they're going to want a thorough watering probably twice a week. Uh, they also like to eat. I would be planning on fertilizing them at least monthly if you're using a liquid fertilizer. I'd be doing it probably four times a year if you're using a dry fertilizer. If you'll take care of your blackberries, you will have a bumper crop next year, but uh, they they simply take more water than most people realize. And I've heard you say that, so I appreciate the advice again, Bob. Thank you. You are sure welcome, and uh, good luck with your projects. We'll talk again. All right, let's get back to gardening. It's going to be Paul and Bob and Mary and Fidel. Good morning, Paul. Hey, Bob. I uh, planted some giant pumpkin seeds. Okay. Uh, they were kind of kind of pricey for what they were. You know, I paid two dollars for four seeds. Oh wow. Uh, I put them in. Yeah, I put them in like uh, the end of March. They were coming along. I had probably two foot vines that were about to flower, and now all of a sudden they're dead. I don't know. What what could have caused that? Too much water would be the most common thing. Okay. Um, they, I, you know, I've never seen uh, squash vine borers in pumpkins, but I have to admit most of the pumpkins I've grown have been the thinner-stemmed uh, types of pumpkins. It is possible. Uh, did they just kind of fold up and die overnight? Yeah, well, uh, three of them died off pretty quick and one of them was hanging on and i thought well that one that one's gonna make it you know i don't need you know 12 giant pumpkins this early right so I, I wasn't too concerned but then yesterday you know after all this rain that one that one died off as well yeah but it's I, right next to my watermelon and my zucchini and they're both doing amazing yeah i suspect um i suspect it's just too much water because pumpkins do not like 
constant, constant moisture. I'll also tell you those super big, Big Mac is probably the most common of the big giant pumpkin varieties. They are usually grown in a climate that's just a little bit cooler than ours. I find the smaller pumpkins do a whole lot better here than the great big ones do. And um, in any event, your pumpkins, I mean, they're fun to grow if you want to have a, a relatively early pumpkin, if you like eating pumpkin. But pumpkins just, you know, our, our seasons start so early and we're so hot in the summer that most of your pumpkins have come and gone by the time the fall holidays roll around. So uh, much as I hate to say it, it's still probably if you're looking for Halloween pumpkins or Thanksgiving pumpkins, you're probably not going to grow them. You're probably going to be getting them from one of the produce markets or somewhere like that. But uh, if you if you plant more, if you grow more, try creating a raised bed or at the very minimum mound up an area, say a six inch, eight inch berm to plant your pumpkins in. So they'll have a little bit better drainage. And I think you'll have a lot better success in growing them. Okay. My wife had bought some uh, mums last year um, at fall. They were bloomed and beautiful, and uh, they've just kind of sat in the same pot on the, the porch, and I've been watering them, and they're blooming now. Is, is that what they're supposed to do? Do you get two blooms out of mums down here? Well, mums are plants that set buds when the days are short and the nights are long. Uh, typically, mums freeze back. And by the time they grow out in the spring, the days are too long for them to set buds. Yours probably got some winter protection. They set those buds back, you know, six, eight weeks ago when we were still into shorter days and longer nights. And, um, yes, we frequently do. Uh, and if we have a mild winter, we almost always get spring blooms and fall blooms from the mums. But once we get it in the longer days, that's all they're going to do until fall. Okay, so uh, just keep them, keep doing what I'm doing, and I'll get another fall bloom out of them again? Aye, they'll be easier to grow, and they'll be more successful if you plant them in the ground than keeping them in pots. But, uh, yes, uh, all things being the same, you should get a good fall bloom. You can cut them back as late as the middle of July and still get a bushier plant. So often if you don't trim them back, they just get uh, kind of tall and gangly. There are three different general categories for mums that uh, we would call early, mid-season, and late blooming. I don't know which one you started with. The mid-season are the ones that most definitely do better here because the real early bloomers, they come out so early when it is still so hot. You just don't get the quality flowers. You don't get the lasting qualities. But you'll never know till you try. But I'd find a place that gets like sun in the morning, shade in the afternoon, uh, plant them out in reasonably good soil, and you can count on having quite a few flowers this fall. Perfect. I appreciate it, Bob. Have a great day. You do the same. Appreciate the call. And now we talk to a man with a good name. Good morning, Bob. Well, good morning, Takayo. What's going on this fine day? Well, I'm heading uh, to Mexico right now, but earlier this spring, uh, my wife and I had gotten some blue bonnets in containers. Okay. H-E-B. Okay. And, and they did well. I, I transplanted them from the plastic to the uh, terracotta pots. Now, if I just left them, of course, they've gone dormant now. If I can leave those in the container, there, will they sprout the next spring? No, sir. They, they haven't gone dormant. They've died. What you have to hope is that they made good seeds. Uh, blue bonnets are, are a bean, in effect. They have that little sort of a seed pod that looks like a little miniature uh, string bean. And blue bonnets typically 
reseed pretty well. At least they do in the ground. In your pots, we're just going to have to wait and see. But they are uh, they're what we call a biennial as opposed to an annual. But they they are not perennial. They do not come back season after season. Once they have bloomed, once they have made seed, those uh, those plants die completely. So. Uh, you will know by about October or so if the seed is going to sprout and come back. You'll see the little rosettes of leaves form, which is what they do in the fall. But in all honesty, if you really want blue bonnets, you're probably going to buy some more plants next fall. But do do keep up with them. Do watch them after the seeds or after the blooms start to fade. Watch those little seed pods. You can collect some seed if you like. You can replant your own seed. Uh, blue bonnets, there, there are many, there are actually about six different kinds of blue bonnets that grow in different parts of Texas. But anyway, that's a lot more information than you asked for. But back to the basics, no, the blue bonnet plants that were there last year, they're dead and gone. And you might as well pull them up and plant something else for summer. All righty, well, I'll do that. Now I'll just buy some more next year. Sounds like a plan. It'll be safe. What part of Mexico are you headed for? Uh, Monterrey. Monterrey, mi hermana vive en Saltillo. Muy cerca de Monterrey. So it's a interesting part of the world down there. You just be super careful while you're down there. Um, always. I lived there for eight years. Uh, wow. So I, I know Mexico extremely well. In fact, I brought a trophy home. I, 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 I married a lady while I was over there. So she's, well, my, now, a teacher. she's now a teacher in Northside. Uh, teaches uh, uh, kindergarten. Spanish only. It's a new program they got, and she just happy as if she had good sense. You know, it's it's funny you say that. My little sister went the opposite direction. She went to Saltillo when we were in high school, three different summers to learn Spanish. Ended up marrying one of the boys down there, and uh, uh, she has she has a school down there where she teaches English with the help of a couple of her kids and all so uh we, we just we just switch things and they love it in saltillo and her husband's an architect and builder so you keep up the good work and uh mexico's a wonderful country a lot of good people down there just be safe while you're down there it certainly is and i wave at saltillo i i uh been there many 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 times the sarapetos their uh, baseball team was a big rival to monterrey the sultanist in monterrey that's interesting so, well, have a safe yeah. trip, and uh, call any time when you help, Bob. It's good to talk to you. All righty. Thank, Thank you, sir. Thank you. Bye. Bye. All right, it's uh, Mary's turn. Good morning, Mary. Hello. Um, I just moved um, to the city from the country, and we have... Mary, you need to turn down your radio. I can barely hear you. We're on a time delay, and you're getting a lot of feedback there. So um, I don't have my radio on. Okay. There's a lot of, a lot of background noise. Okay. Um, there, there is, um, everybody's asleep. Um, okay. Um, we just moved to this place, and um, there's a lot of web on our oaks, on the sago palms, on the um, crepe myrtles. They're they're all over. Okay. What, what what can I do? And what is it that are on your plants? Spider. They look like spider webs. Okay. Um, probably what you are seeing is not actually a spider web. It's something called a bark louse. It looks just like spider webs. You see them a lot when we, uh, when we have as much moisture as we've had, but, uh, they're actually a harmless little creature. They do no damage whatsoever. 
and uh, best thing to do would be just ignore them. Now, if you want to get rid of them, uh, you can mix up just a little bit of ammonia, dilute some ammonia in water and spray it. Ammonia will dissolve those webs. Uh, it'll make them go mm-hmm. away. But but what you're seeing are not they're not spider webs. They're not harmful or dangerous to you okay. in any way. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I got one more question. Um, I just discovered that they had uh, the people, the previous owners had um, grapes, uh-huh. and, and so there's grapevines, but but they're intertwined with some poison uh, oak. Okay. Um, what do I do? Well, very carefully, um, you know, if uh, were this earlier in the year, I probably would tell you to cut them both back. I mean, working, if you're going to try to get grapes, you're really going to work at it. And grapevines are very, very vigorous. If you need, you, you actually should every winter, you should thin your grapevines out by about 80%. So, oh, okay. I did not know that. I, I don't know anything about grapes, but... I was happy to see them because it it really is a nice, beautiful vine, but there's a bunch of poison on them. Well, you almost have to, and when you're dealing with poison ivy, you never wear leather gloves. You wear plastic or rubber gloves that you can wash so the the sap doesn't soak in, doesn't come in contact with your skin. Um, Best thing to do is don't try to pull it out, but if you go down close to ground level you'll be able to tell the difference in the stems the grape vines will have a very rough looking stem they actually have uh looks like little pieces peeling off the stem okay whereas yes. your your, uh-huh. your poison ivy is going to have a much much smoother uh stem to it and i'd get in there with your little hand shears and again do this very carefully but just snip the poison ivy off at ground level when it mm-hmm. starts to sprout back up, you can spray the foliage. Your grapes are going to put out foliage that's much higher off the ground, up on your fence, your tarber, your trellis, whatever. But okay. cut the cut the poison ivy off. I wouldn't go to the trouble to try to pull it out. I just let it, you know, shrivel up where it is. But when that poison ivy tries to sprout out from the base, make yourself an, a mixture of the vinegar and orange oil. Get strong vinegar. Uh, Just make up maybe a quart of it, but uh, take a quart of strong vinegar, a couple of uh, uh, tables, or actually uh, probably about uh, one tablespoon of of orange oil into a quart of vinegar. Spray that on the foliage. You don't have to soak the soil. Spray it on the foliage of the poison ivy, and it will burn the foliage back. You'll spray two or three times, and then your poison ivy will just give up and die. As long as you don't put the mixture on the leaves of your grapes, it won't hurt them at all. And if it gets on a couple of the leaves, it'll just make those leaves disappear. But uh, you can't really spray it when they're all mixed together. But if you go through very carefully, uh, rubber gloves, little hand pruners, snip the stems on those uh, poison ivy plants or poison oak, whichever it is, and then mm-hmm. wait for it to try to sprout out. Spray the base. You'll get rid of it without hurting your grapevines at all. Okay, great, great. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. Bye. All right, back to gardening. Let's see here. It's going to be Fidel, Dave, Bill, and Judy in that order. So let's just get right to it. Good morning again, Fidel. How are you, sir? Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity, Bob. Uh, After I talked to you, I went out and picked my last of my peaches. Yes, sir. And uh, I had some commentary to make about that. Mine bloomed for about a month. 
in two or three different uh, times. Really? Okay. And I still have peaches that are a little bit bigger than marbles on my tree. And then I have the big ones. I have a June gold variety. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's the best year I've had it. It's been about four years. Uh, so I had an outstanding crop. I lease up that one tree. I probably got three-fourths of a bushel of peaches off of it. Uh, if you're so trying to make me hungry, you're doing a very good job of it. June Gold is uh, it's a little bit long-chilling for San Antonio, but for the near hill country, June Gold is uh, just one of the best varieties out there. And uh, uh, it may be a clingstone, but, man, it's tasty. And uh, uh, hopefully your tree's up to a good size now, and you'll get a good crop every year. Yeah, no, it's it's already about seven or eight feet tall. Yeah. In fact, some of the branches had so many peaches that they broke off. Uh, but the question I had about the June gold, is that a, uh, 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 could I grow that from the seed or is that a, uh, I can't remember the term. Uh, well, it's it, it in effect is a hybrid. And even if it were okay. self-pollinated, um, you would get some mixed up genetics. Now, would you get a good tree? Probably so. Would it be just like June Gold? It probably would be similar, but are you willing to wait about seven years before that tree gets mature enough to uh, bloom and set fruit? And I know you're a patient guy, but it's uh, it's a long wait. A peach tree has to be very big, has to be like six, seven years minimum before it reaches maturity to where it can produce fruit. That's why most all peach trees at least are grafted because if you took wood from a mature tree, grafted it onto another tree, you can have peaches the first year. But growing them from seed oh, okay. is a very long process. So can you do it? Yes. Are you patient enough to wait that long? Uh, you'll have to make that decision. It'll be kind of hard six feet under, though. <laughs> well, hopefully that won't be the case. But uh, now that's that's the problem with growing these things. Uh, and peach trees are not super long-lived anyway, but... Uh, it's just a long wait before you see fruit and has nothing to do with size. It has to do with the tree's actual maturity as to whether it's able to make fruit or not. Another question, Bob. I'm originally from the Laredo area, and we used to have some freestone, we called them native peaches. They weren't very big compared to the ones I get on this June gold. Right. Uh, uh, is there anything like that around here or... Well, you can get low-chilling peaches, and um, that's what you were looking at. You know, there are literally hundreds of peach varieties. But if you were to plant that same tree in uh, Bandera, the problem is that it reaches its chilling requirement. It gets enough hours below 45 degrees earlier in the season. And then if we get a uh, warm spell, then your tree's likely to come out and bloom out around Christmas or New Year's. And then we get a hard freeze, and you don't get any peaches from it. That's why we have to match the chilling hours so specifically to the location. Because if you put a, a peach that is a higher chill, if you took a Fredericksburg peach, for instance, and planted it in Bandera, nine years out of ten, we're not going to get enough cold weather to put it into the proper dormancy to bloom. If you take a real low-chill peach, like you would have around Laredo or 
you know, down in the valley, it's going to fulfill that requirement. It's going to bloom too early and then freeze so you don't get any fruit. So you pretty much have to be specific to your zone. Where you are, you're in about a 700 to 800 hour zone. June Gold is an excellent peach for you. Melba is a good peach for you. Um, there are a number of good peaches you can grow up there, but, uh, I'm afraid your, uh, uh, some of your Valley peaches, uh, or some of your, uh, Laredo peaches are just going to be too low chill for Bandera. Okay, Bob. Thanks again. Appreciate it. You have a good rest of the weekend. You do the same, Fidel. It's always good to talk to you. Dave's up next. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Beautiful, beautiful morning out here in the hill country. Yes, it is. Um, quick question, uh, just to see if it's something I'm doing or that I'm not doing with my garden this year. Um, last year, my tomatoes, of course, were just crazy, uh, jungle. Um, this year, um, I'm getting good production on the fruit, but, uh, there's no leaves. It's, um, the stems are bare. Um, all the lower branches and leaves have, have turned brown and died. Um, so I don't know if I'm not feeding enough or if it's just the crazy weather this year. Has, uh, have the, did the leaves yellow and then turn brown and then just go away? Yes. You probably are looking at a fungal disease called early blight. Uh, it's been very, very common this year when we start getting rain or, you know, water splashes up onto the leaves from the ground. This is how the fungal spores can be transmitted. And unfortunately, it um, many times it shortens the lives of the plant, the peaches, or the peaches, the tomatoes that are on there will go ahead and ripen. I would be looking to plant some new plants next month. I would be treating the ones you have. Is there any good green growth up toward the top? Is there any growth at all on them? Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, it's growing at the top fine. Okay, get some whole ground cornmeal. Soak a bit Uh of it in water, you know, maybe half a cup to a gallon of water, and spray your plants with that. Spray the new foliage. Be spraying about once a week or so. As it gets hotter and drier, which uh, is definitely getting hotter, probably going to get drier, early blight is less of a problem, but uh, it's been a very, very common problem on tomatoes this year. Okay, yeah, I, I it's I, I hadn't seen like anything like this before. I put uh, the ground cornmeal on on the surface. Yeah, but uh, I've got plenty left that I can uh, I can turn into a yeah Sir, a liquid. Yeah, I would do that. It's just uh, the combination of above average moisture, below average temperatures. Uh, um, early blight has been just a real a real problem this year. But the fact okay. that your plants are putting on new growth. Uh, uh, do you what varieties do you grow? Are they mainly determinants or indeterminates? Uh, mainly indeterminates. Okay. This year, I I, I bought a uh, I tried a wider variety, but uh-huh. yeah, mostly indeterminates. Well, then you have a good chance that they will grow out and continue to produce. Your small fruited tomatoes will continue to produce throughout the summer. Your bigger fruited tomatoes are going to stop setting new fruit when the nights get hot, but they'll pick up again in the, as the weather cools down late summer. Yeah, the star of my garden this year, I hadn't tried them before, the Juliet. Oh, uh, Juliet is, uh, you'll you'll uh, pick so many tomatoes off of that thing, you'll get tired <laughs> of eating tomatoes. I, Juliet is probably, you know, it's a little pear-shaped tomato, but it's, it's a cherry type. It continues to set fruit, and 
I know at one point I think I planted two plants, and I was picking a quart of fruit a day off of those things. Uh, I personally, I like the flavor of Sun Gold or Sweet 100 better, but Juliet's a good tomato, and it is it is extremely prolific. I guess we should say. Yes, yes, that's what we're that's what we're finding out, and the Sun Golds are are doing okay, but they they're not producing as well this year as they did last year. Yeah. So we're we're hoping to to get more of those as it starts warming up a little oh, bit. Oh, I think you will, but but always plant at least one or two Juliets because that's going to be just year in and year out. That's one of the best producers you'll ever set out. Yeah, that's a great tip. Just one quick question also. Um, I had uh, a, a local company bring in some road base, and when they did, they brought in some type of a grass. I don't know what to call it. It's like a I, I call it a spider grass because it's growing um, like long stems, and then they they root, and then they they continue to branch out, and okay. it's starting to spread all over the area where the road base was. Um, I, I was over at your place Friday. I bought some of the the seventy percent um, uh, vinegar. Uh, twenty percent vinegar. Yeah. Twenty. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. the twenty percent. Um, and then I'm going to try that with the orange oil. Do you think that'll take care of it, or do I it, need to just hoe it? Or it should take care of it. Um, anything you can do to pack that base. Uh, is this for a driveway or something like that? Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. You know, get out with whatever and just driving on it or whatever. The more you pack that base, the less you're going to have come up through it. What comes up, the okay. vinegar and orange oil, will be your best way to take care of it. Okay, all right. Well, thank you very much, and have a great day. You do the same, Dave. Appreciate the call. Thank you, sir. All right, let's get back to gardening and back to the phone lines. It is going to be Bill and then Judy, and Bill's up first. Good morning, Bill. Hey, Bob. I'm glad to get to you. The first time it's a miracle I got through on the first dial. Excellent. Very good. Your timing was good. Okay, The uh, my, my I want to, Bob Webster has to grow plants lesson about how to do it through a, not a sprayer, but I've got a gallon, uh, you know, water, water can. Uh-huh. That, that has a thing on top. I can take that off. I followed the instructions and asked to a gallon of water, and I went around the 12 tomato plants I got and a couple of other things, and I kind of just spouted the ground up didn't use the sprinkler part, just poured it around the the trees. Okay. Uh, the bushes. Yeah. It, it, how many tomato plants uh, uh, can I drench with a gallon of it? Oh, golly. Um, if you've got a one-gallon watering can, most, most watering cans are two gallons. And I normally, you know, I, I can water about six or seven plants with two gallons. So I'm going to tell you with a gallon just to really thoroughly soak them, um, you're going to use that much on two or three plants if your plants are any size that's at all. About, that's about what I did. You did it that's right. about what I did. So I, that was a good guess. Yes, sir. Uh, also, I have a small, you know, about a three or four foot surviving Myers lemon that that didn't produce anything this year because it's only a year old. Okay. I put a gallon of that stuff around it. Was that any worthwhile? 
Oh, that's very definitely worthwhile. Two gallons would have been even better because your lemons uh, will have a bigger root system. Now, the lemon is in a pot or is it in the ground? No, it's in the ground. Yeah, I'd I'd do a couple of gallons around your lemon, but uh, yeah, a gallon is a real good start. Oh, okay. And I guess the only other thing is I use some of it where I've got a 10-foot long, 15-inch deep uh, planter across the uh, the porch in the front yard. Uh And it's full of uh, flowers and other things like that. I, I put the sprinkler thing in. And then I just kind of just in ten feet. I think I used three gallons. Yeah, you're doing it. You're doing it just about right. I would. You're doing it. Yeah, you're using just uh, the right amount, in my opinion. That's enough to water thoroughly and uh, get them some good nutrition as well, Bill. You're doing it exactly right. Thank you very much. That's all I needed today. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, you keep up the good work, and I'll finish up the hour with Judy. Good morning, Judy. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. Taking my call. I have a, I guess, a bug problem. They're about an inch long. They're kind of hard, and they got many, many legs. Okay. Uh, and they're just, they love the tomatoes. Anything near the ground, uh-huh. they're actually eating on top of the tomatoes. Right. Those are called millipedes. Um, they don't sting or hurt or anything, but they can certainly do some damage i what i would do is get some uh diatomaceous earth they call it de for short um you want to put it out dry it has to be dry to be effective but diatomaceous earth will kill the millipedes very effectively be totally safe for you totally safe for your tomatoes and other things in your garden but uh i'd i'd be putting out some de is what i would be using tried the struggle plus but it didn't do much no it'll get the pill bugs which is a good thing but the the millipedes uh i think uh dry diatomaceous earth will do a much better job for you okay well i appreciate and my tomatoes this year i swear are on steroids i don't i've never had such I mean, they've just grown like mad. Oh, that's a good thing. Well, it's been kind of ideal growing weather. I mean, we've gotten, been blessed with very good rainfall. Uh, The sunny days, uh, what I think the tomatoes did, at least in my garden, is they spent some time just growing roots when we just had cloudy day after cloudy day after cloudy day. And now that we've gotten into more typical sunny weather, uh, you know, I, I grow mine in cages, and I literally daily have to go tuck those little shoots coming out back inside the cage because uh, it seems like they grow several inches a day. So you're doing it right. We've just had ideal growing weather, and you obviously planted properly and uh, using the right fertilizers and things. And just I hope the production is going to be equal to the growth because it looks like like when they start producing, it's going to be a really good year. Well, we shall see. Thank you. You're sure welcome. And thank you for the call this morning. I appreciate it, Judy. Bye. But if you've been listening long, you know that uh, this is a segment of the show where we get to visit with the dirt doctor. We'll save approximately the last 30 minutes of the show so for uh, more questions. So uh, keep that dialing finger ready. But right now, I get to visit with a really great gardener, Mr. Howard Garrett. How's the dirt doctor today? Good morning. How's everybody there? Well, we had a bit of a storm in town here a couple of days ago. Uh, 
pretty pretty violent little thing that tore up trees and dumped some hail on a lot of places and really? so a few people are recovering from that i'm glad to say the nursery was spared and those of us in the hill country it sort of formed over us and we hardly got anything out of it we've we've gotten a little bit of your north texas wild weather around here but other than that it's just uh gone very quickly from spring weather to summer weather i think we're supposed to be about 102 today so uh uh, nice, cool mornings, but the afternoon, you're going to be looking for a shady spot. Well, yesterday it um, got pretty uh, pretty warm, too, and I even felt a little woozy. I don't know what, if that was the weather or there was something else going on, but we're definitely getting into uh, summertime. I, <clears throat> I had a quick question for you before I forget it. Have you ever heard of a plant called bottle plant? Um, well, uh, there, there are a number of things similar to that. There, of course, is bottle, a, bottle palm I know you're familiar with. Uh, there's a little... This is a jatropa, I think. It looks, ah. The flower looks like it. And uh, the reason I'm bringing it up, I was at a party last night, and this guy, that <clears throat> the house where we were, said he had had a plant that had been in bloom constantly for 40 years and he had had several of them and the only time he'd ever lost them was you know when he forgot and left them out and they got frozen right and he showed me the thing it had little uh clusters of uh, red orange flowers and it had a leaf that reminded me of something and then finally dawned on me this morning it looked like a jatropa and sure enough that's uh apparently what it is sometimes called a buddha belly right uh, tree yeah and it's uh, very interesting. He said it, it was just indestructible to uh, grow in, uh, <laughs> in a container. So I just wondered if you had ever had any experience with it. I'm going to try it out. Yeah, it's, uh, we have. They are not common. But, you know, the Jatropa is such a, that is such a variable genus. I think the one most people know is the woody one, uh, Jatropa hostata, that they call peregrina, that's like a, little tropical tree with red birds and i think they're interesting because the male flowers and female flowers are separate but there's this whole separate group of them that have that big old fleshy looks almost like a giant onion bulb and then they produce that uh fairly fairly succulent growth the leaves are pretty deeply lobed but uh and they with those kind of orange red flowers now i've never seen them bloom that constantly and uh uh, I don't know of any source of them in the nursery trade, but I think it's a highly desirable curiosity, so to speak. But uh, I, I didn't know it by that name. I, um, but I, I think it's, um, you know, I, I think they're real good plants. I don't know any negatives, like you mentioned. If you forget and leave them out in the winter, they will freeze and die. But yeah, uh, yeah it's tropical. Sure. As a flowering tropical, they're they're just an interesting plant. Well, it's. Uh... I'm looking at it here online, and it's listed as very rare, it says, which is interesting. But he said that his had literally been in bloom constantly for as long as he's owned them. So it's going to be worth giving a try, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Did he offer the, you some seed? or? That I'm looking at his Jotropa Poda uh, Greca. Yeah, uh-huh. that's what what you were saying, I guess. Right. But anyway, everybody may want to give that one a look. See, he had his on the porch in uh, in total shade. So that's interesting because I've I've always thought of him as more of a sun lover. 
His, do you know if his plants ever made seed? Um, he said they did. In fact, he was offering me some. He said they didn't always make seed, but, but they had, and he has grown some from his seed. So it's going to be a fun one to kind of play around well, with. Well, yeah, I'll get him to share with you, and uh, you know, maybe one of these days we'll get enough seed. You can make that another really attractive offering uh, you know, for torque and things with the seed that you've sent out. Yep. But, no, I love that yep. plant. I wish we had a better source of it, and it's just – uh, every four or five years, somebody will show up with a handful of plants and, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a neat plant and I don't know of any insect problem it gets. It's uh, very adaptable to what kind of soil it grows in. It's forgiving if you let it get a little too dry, but it tolerates fairly wet conditions. So, uh, oh, it sounds like a good discovery. Well, we'll give it a, give it a, um, a whirl. My column uh, this week, <clears throat> oh, one more thing before we go to that, That I wanted to talk about Hank Blue Paint just a little bit, but uh, I heard you were asked about millipedes early on, and I, right. I was running around, I had to run to the store real quick, and I didn't didn't hear your answer. What? Uh, I'm getting a bunch of calls about that, too. There must have been kind of an explosion of oh, yeah. the weather, I guess. Yeah. But what I tell people to do, and I just wanted to see if there's some reason uh not to do that i just tell people to vacuum them up oh that's that's great if you if you're able to do that uh uh this lady had them in the vegetable garden and they were in and among plants where i think it'd be a little harder to get to but and i just told her diatomaceous earth that seems to work pretty well but uh yeah where they they come up on the porches when it gets real wet they're on the porches they're trying to come under the doors and into the house and up there i just you know sweep them up or vacuum them up like you say and uh um i one of the things i told somebody early this morning uh it make a great father's day gift is a little handheld vac and out in the uh out in the garden that that's great for stink bugs and uh it sure work well for millipedes too but, yeah, I think so. Yeah, the questions I'm getting about them are inside the house. So that's where yeah. I'm telling them just to vacuum them up. And a little handheld vac for outside or inside or outside, either one, I think would be good. They just on the uh, on the paint, blue paint. I, I I thought that I had written a column about it before. I, I had done newsletters in the past, but I never had done a column. And and I wanted to look into it a little bit more, which I did. And it's kind of interesting. The paint blue actually came from. Uh, African Americans in the southern states, a group called uh, Gullah, and I've never even heard that term before, G-U-L-L-A-H, Gullah. That's new to me. Yeah, and they uh, there's some indication that what I've always said was freed slaves uh, who are the ones that came up with it. There's some indication that while still slaves, it, it came up during those times. And it was thought that the uh, blue would uh, uh, keep spirits away, ghosts, haints. That's where the uh-huh. you know, haint is an alternative uh, spelling for uh, haunts. Uh-huh. And that's where it came from. And the, the, one of the theories was that it represented water. It looked like water and that the spirits couldn't pass through water which was interesting. I never heard that angle. And, of course, what, what we've always heard is it represents the sky and and uh, prevents the spirits from crossing there. But I think this, the sky uh, idea probably is what is really working for the insects and the birds and all that. I think it just confuses them. 
It seems to, and uh, it's the wasp, the mud daubers, the uh, and the swallows and things like that. They just avoid it. I, it's one of the most amazing yeah. things. Before I painted, you know, my um, the ceiling on my porch and up on the balcony. I know Malcolm Beck walked around my house one time and counted a hundred and some odd wasp nests. And since I went to the Haint Blue, I. The wasp just moved out to the barn. I still have plenty of wasps, and I'm happy to have them. But uh, I don't think I've had, you know, half a dozen wasp nests in five or ten years since I uh, used the Haint Blue paint. And uh, I, I tell you, it it keeps the mud swallows from actually building up against the paint. But where I've got light fixtures and things hanging down, they still build their nest right on top of that. But they don't seem to, they, they seem to avoid contact with that blue. Yeah, it works. Apparently the original uh, Hank Blue was made on site and it um, it was made, uh, it was a milk paint mm-hmm. base. And one of the ingredients in milk paint, they'd make them in pits actually on the site, uh-huh. and uh, one of the ingredients in milk paint was lime. There was even, as I did the research, there was even a couple of mentions of lye, but I think mainly what they were talking about was lime being in there, and a lot of people thought that was what had the repelling quality, but I don't think I believe that because what I use is just you know inexpensive uh, acrylic paint that I bought uh, that's the color. Yep. Now, we... Uh, the, the other thing that came up in the research, and I had mentioned it before on my website, the Savannah, Georgia, ha- actually has two colors that they have officially <laughs> approved <laughs> of as being ain't, ain't blue. One's a light and the other is dark. And one of them talks about it's um, kind of a bluish green, a teal color. Those chips that we put on DirtDoctor.com are as close as I could come to replicating those. But... The more you do research on it, the more it, it comes up that it's really not a, a act. It's not a brand. It's not a kind of paint. It's not even a very specific color. Uh-huh. It's just a, kind of a range of blues and blue greens and teals, and it really works. The more research I do on it, the more I see that uh, you know people have been using it around the world for years. Well, it's and and that's real interesting because I've always thought of it as just being kind of that light blue, sky blue color. But it'd be interesting, uh, one of the blue greens, things like that, to just do a little experimental pattern somewhere and uh, and see if there's any any shade that's better than the others. But I find any of the light blues have worked well for me. And you know, you go to the paint store and ask for paint blue, they don't have any idea what you're talking about. But uh, they're, they're, gosh, you know, all these stores have such a mixture of, uh, or so many different colors. You can probably get about a dozen different blues that would that work pretty well. Well, I think, and I, I don't have any feedback yet from a specific project. You know, you know where I think it would probably work better than anywhere else is in a boathouse. You know, you have so many uh, uh, spider webs and things that love to come into a boathouse and right. so many different insects and things. I'd like to see somebody try it there and see how it works. We do have one of our uh, one of our friends, one of our listener readers, uh, sent us a photograph of his creeping feeder. I, I assume that's a mo- movable feeder out in the pasture for uh-huh. livestock. He he has painted the inside of it blue. Uh, because he's had trouble in the past with wasps and 
mud daubers coming in and building a nest inside. And he's he's reported to me already that uh, maybe one of your listeners or uh, can't can't remember for sure, but his report so far is that uh, the wasps have not come into it since it's been blue. You know that that is that answers a, a question I had, and that is: Is it effective in dark places? Because everywhere that I've always used it was out in the open on a porch or patio or somewhere like that, but closed up in something like a boathouse, like you suggest. But uh, even a, shed, a storage shed, you know, work shed, yeah. I, I put all that in the column, and by the way, that, that column will run next week, and what we're doing now, I think it runs on Wednesday, and I think it gets put up on DirtDoctor.com on Thursday, so everybody can read Very my good. column on the website next Thursday. Very good. Well, it's, I don't know, it sure is an easy way to uh, to slow down the, the paper wasps and the, and the dirt daubers, but it'll be real interesting, and hopefully we'll get some feedback from uh, some of your readers and listeners as to how well it works in a closed shed like that, because uh, yeah. I can't yeah. say I've ever tried it there, and I sure have, you know, plenty of wasps and things, and uh, I... I tolerate the yellow jackets. I tolerate those red and black wasps. But uh, we've had over the past, oh, six, eight years, it seems like we've had a an explosion of this wasp. And I don't know which species it is, but it's the ones that are solid red. And those things yeah. are aggressive, especially in late summer. And uh, They're pretty nasty. Yeah. I got into a, a nest of those when I was a kid over in, in Pittsburgh at Pine Tree um, Lake. Pine Tree Lake, I forget the name of it now. It's been so long. It's where I learned how to ski behind a fishing boat. But I, was on, <laughs> I was on a pier and dra- draped my legs over the side of the pier and right into Ooh. one of those nests. I got stung several times. So I've got some uh, some uh, very memorable experience with those guys. Well, I tell people even in this column, I said, now don't think that I've changed my mind about wasps. There are <laughs> wasps and mud daubers are extremely beneficial, but right. if you have a situation where the the cosmetics are important, or you want to just keep the keep the number of them down. Some this Hank Blue is uh, is a way to 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 help with that situation. But well, we don't want to get rid of all the wasps by any means. I think it just makes a move. I doubt if it has anything to any impact at all on the population numbers and things, but it just makes them go build their nest somewhere else. And, right, that's uh, what I hope. But it's, yeah, and, and it's just it's so interesting and so telling to me because I have always had, you know, huge numbers of wasp nests. Don't have them around the house as much now, but they're certainly around my sheds and barn and things like that. And you know how big pecan trees I have out in the field and up and down my road. And I cannot remember ever having seen a webworm in those trees. Yeah, well, that's why those wasps are taking care of business there. And the trick of grandma wasps are probably part of that because you know, even if you don't put those out, that's a native wasp across, you know, the country. So they're they're out there too. Well, Except for people that are spraying too many pesticides, like is recommended by certain folks, and <laughs> killing those beneficials with with whom we do not agree. But uh, they're still out there, and I tell you, it's you know, I was repeating to my engineer this morning, Chris, the old old thing about we know that the speed of light is so much faster than the speed of sound and that's why some people appear bright until you hear them speak and i just can't believe the things that i hear and see people doing i swear we must have brought a bunch of 
yard maintenance people over from Houston because we're starting to see this mulch mulching of tree trunks piled up around the trunks of trees over here and i just can't think of anything that does less good and more harm and i've asked people you know why do you do this well i don't know everybody else does or somebody told me to do this and it's uh, you know we've we've made some progress in getting people to expose the root flares but uh, try to keep people from letting their uh, help in the yard pile mulch around the trunk of trees I, I just you know you just want to tear your hair out driving down the roads and and looking well, and seeing all the stupid stuff yeah we all used to say uh you need to mulch mulch that bare soil you know back in the de- early days of our careers people didn't use mulch all that much and malcolm and you and me and john Gould and everybody started re- recommending use mulch mulch the bare soil and all that without giving you know, detailed instructions about it, except for piling it all around the tree. I don't think any of us were careful enough about that back uh, in when we started and probably, probably thought that mulch against the tree would breathe okay and wouldn't be a problem. I didn't. I don't think I even thought about it much. So yep. that, that's how it really got started, and it surprises people when they hear me say, now when you plant a new tree or even an existing tree the mulch should cover the bare soil but as it gets nearer and nearer the base of the tree it should get thinner and thinner and at the tree it should be a depth of zero there shouldn't be any at all yeah well we still we still believe very highly in mulches over the root zone not up against the trunk because they cool the soil they suppress weeds and they just do so many good things but like everything else they uh have to be used have to be used properly out there you know and i think making them too thick can be a little bit of a problem i've had several situations even on my own landscaping where i've put shredded tree trimmings mulch in really thick and it has fused together you ever mm-hmm. seen that happen yeah, and it gets hydrophobic the water just won't penetrate right. it when you do that it won't breathe well and, and it won't transfer water well and you got to be careful about that you can you know, solve it real quickly. I use a three-prong cultivating tool and sure. just rough it up if that happens. But I think putting it in maybe a little too thickly yeah. uh, leads to that more so than if you just put in, you know, a couple of inches. I I totally agree with you on that. And I like b- putting a little bit of uh, finished compost. I like mixing with the tree trimmings and things like that. Yeah. I, I think that helps counter the problem. But, again, you get over, I, well, I just don't think it does much good to make it that much thicker, but half an inch to an inch uh, can make a lot of difference, and uh, maybe a little thicker if you're worried about grass growing up through it. But, yeah, there's very definitely a problem with making it too thick and consequently not letting the water get through to the soil underneath. There's a, an interesting story floating out there, and I haven't had time to look it up yet, but I just heard kind of out of the corner of my ear uh, while I was doing something else yesterday, that there was a big, gigantic cloud of ladybugs that showed up somewhere. Did you hear that story? No, I haven't heard that. Was that locally yeah. or California? Uh, well, I, I just told you all of that I heard. So I've got to look into it and see what it was. Yeah. It's apparently the harmonia, the uh, harmonia, the Japanese one, which would make sense. Sure. Uh, sometimes they come in gigantic clusters, but it may be our native one. So I'll look into it, and everybody else uh, check into it, and let's see what we can find there. Well, it, the the moisture that we've had this year, this should be an ideal year for beneficials as well as for the 
more problematic things but we've just it's other than the fact that uh some of you guys have had a little bit too much rain but uh when it started raining in about march or so we've been pretty blessed to have good rains fairly well spaced we did not have a lot of sunshine early on in the spring and i think that's why a lot of people's vegetables gardens got off to a slow start i think why there was a lot of early blight around early but now that we've gotten sunnier things are just have just exploded into growth on just almost everything i want to ask you one question if you have observed in dallas something that i've seen down here the crepe myrtles so many of them are absolutely spectacular in the whites in the salmons in the pinks and I hardly see any blooms at all on the red ones. And I haven't gotten out and looked, but just as I drive around and look, everything I see is pink or lavender, and I've seen virtually no red crepe myrtles in bloom yet. It uh, Well, I haven't noticed that color specifically, but I have noticed it's very inconsistent how yep. they're blooming this year, so that's probably related. I have no idea why it would affect the red. I don't either. More than other colors, though. That, that's an uh, interesting thing to look into. Yeah, but and some of them are spectacular. I don't think um, even the Natchez, even the good whites are quite as heavy, but there's uh, – Roberta and I usually get out and walk a couple of miles before work if the weather's not too bad because uh, we come in so early to beat the traffic. But we passed one, and it's probably Tuscarora or one of those silver salmony-colored ones that I don't think I've ever seen a more – a crepe myrtle more heavily laden with flowers and yet there's others out there that have average or even below average flowers and like see some of them are just uh hardly blooming at all it's just you know it's just interesting the things we observe and when you ask why it gets real confusing well i think it's uh related to the to the weather the clouds more than anything you know i even heard some golf course guys i was talking about one of my buddies that's involved in a golf course that's a new one up north, and I was talking about what I had noticed, and, and they were saying the same thing, that there's been so many cloudy days uh-huh. that the Bermuda grasses are really just not anywhere near where they usually are at this time of the season. So I think I think that may be part of it on the flowering plants. Some flowering plants probably like it to be a little bit less uh, bright and less hot to set the ultimate flower show, and others like it. You know, the hotter and, dry <laughs> and, and brighter, the better. That that's probably what's going on. And that's why we love to see such a diverse planting in our landscapes and things yep. like that. Because if you do it right, you'll always have always have lots of good color. But it's uh, it, it's been an interesting year. And like I say, it, it I think a lot of plants sat there and grew a lot of roots when it was. A little cloudier earlier in the spring and we're just for the most part we're seeing absolutely beautiful growth on things now and just trying to get people to water properly is always the biggest challenge but uh it's why the weeds were so prolific is we had ideal weather for weeds early but we're just now really beginning to see the turf grasses start to take off and grow and of course tell the people if they uh fertilized back in january when we recommended it, it may be time for a second application yeah, we tell people that uh, June is the the normal time for that second major fertilization of the year. But the nice thing is with the organic program, you can fertilize any month of the year and you're yeah. not going to hurt anything at all. We're but not related to the flowering, too. Another thing, you know, we talked about magnolias being so heavily laden with buds and, uh-huh. and that we might have a real show from them. 
it didn't come to pass because even though they were at least here, they, even though they were they were heavily heavily colored with buds, they come out still just real spotty on the tree. You know, there's mm. there's a lot of flowers, but there's a lot of buds that haven't opened yet. So there's never this you know tr- just solid white show on a magnolia tree. It's just white you know flowers speckled around on the uh, on the plant. It's interesting. Not all of them, but not yeah. at once. Do y'all, I know you have uh, a lot of southern magnolias. Uh, Little Jim is the one that we find does one of the best where, where people want a magnolia. It's a little shorter statured tree, but it's it's one of the few that really does well here. The big old grandiflora, southern magnolias, if you've got the right place and you've got pretty good soil, uh, they do okay, but... Uh, People that want uh, want a good magnolia down here, I I usually recommend Little Jim as being the best variety. I think Little Jim and, and other uh, you know similar uh, cultivars probably is what they are are good. Not only because they're a little slower growing, they're still going to get big. I think that's a big uh, that's a misconception that they are dwarf or something, but they, they just grow a little slower. But the thing that I also like about them is that the color of the greens is darker. Oh yeah. Than, than Southern Magnolia, and it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful little tree. No question about it. We we see them sometimes as spalliade, which is uh, oh, yeah. an yep. interesting thing, but it, it's a good specimen for a spalliade if you're into that sort of thing. Yeah, I think that uh, that's one of the things that I saw early in my landscape career on several plants that kind of surprised me. And if, uh, as I've traveled, I, I can't remember what country it was, but it was a European country. I mm-hmm. saw a lot of actual fruit trees that were espaliered and doing just beautifully. They uh, they take to that quite well, which makes sense because in an orchard, a lot of times, like the uh, Adams uh, Orchard, you know, Apple right. Company down in Medina, they grow the apples on on uh, arbors like grapes you know the right very yep. short and, and trimmed you know heavily and all that so it makes <laughs> sense that they work in the landscape as a spaghetti well and it makes them easy to pick if you're going for that it's been several years since we've been to europe but it seems like austria was one of the places where uh we we saw a lot of espalier pears and some other fruit trees as well and uh i tell you i, I love european gardens I, the, such a such a cultural tradition going back a couple of hundred years, and there's sure some beautiful gardens and some great gardeners over there. I'm just jealous when I see them because the weather's all, always in the summertime anyway, you know, more mild and more conducive to uh, really good plant growth in uh, our summers sometimes. Except for the, you know, if we use the right kind of plants, we can do it here too. No, we can. It's just not quite as much fun to garden at 105 degrees as it right. is at 75 degrees. But uh, it's why we still keep it up. Uh, I do want to have a conversation sometime. We start out uh, saying we'd talk about peat moss sometime soon. I was Googling and I was trying to do a little research myself. And when I Googled peat moss is a preservative, the first two things to come up were from the dirt doctor. So, uh, uh, no. <laughs> always, always enjoy seeing that, but, uh, everything's going well, I trust with Torque and, uh, your arts, uh, finding a market out there and still bringing some good, uh, funds in for a great research uh, organization. Yeah, we'd certainly like to do more and, uh, you know, provide more funds for the nonprofit, but, uh, things are going well. I'm having fun, uh, keep trying new uh, techniques and everything. Hope to get y'all to Dallas sometime, show you the studio and show you what, 
we're doing uh, on site there. But in the meantime, everybody get out there and enjoy those uh, healthy organic gardens, and we'll uh, visit again next week. We'll look forward to it, Howard. Thank you so much. And uh, you and the pups and the family uh, just have a great uh, week, and uh, give us a report from the golf course next time you're out that way as well. Okay. See you <laughs> Thanks thank so you, Bob. Thanks, Bob. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right, let's get back to the phone lines. Alfred, Frank, John, and Cindy, and Alfred's up first. Good morning, sir. Hi, Alfred. Hello. Good morning. Hey, what's going on, Bob? Just another beautiful okay, morning. I'd like to start with, yes, it is, until the sun gets a little bit brighter, a little higher in the sky, right? Right. Um, I have a couple of, of uh, nice things to say about your, your uh, wisdom. I got a rose-cutting out of uh, New Mexico from a 1990s time period, uh, Heritage Rose. Very good. And uh, and I, I uh, prepped it with some uh, Super Thrive. Uh-huh. I got a dozen of these things, right? Oh, good. And I did some in Super Thrive, some in Hormone, and some with potato, stuck it in a potato with some honey. Uh-huh. And the Super Thrive is what survived. Well, And that's... it's beautiful. Ah, oh, glad to hear it. And uh, then I got an apple tree, a delicious apple which shouldn't do anything, right? Well, down yellow here. delicious yellow delicious will do down here. Red delicious normally does not. Okay, these are, I think, red. Yeah. And it's up in New Mexico. It produces okay. hundreds of oh, yeah. this tree. Right. And I stuck it in the ground here about four years ago, a, a, a cutting. Now it's about 14 feet tall. It's huge. Has it produced and for you here yet? This year, I got five apples. <laughs> well, we had a relatively cold winter, so I'll be very interested to see how it does long term. But uh, it's interesting, and it you know it just tells you that names mean nothing. But the yellow delicious uh, actually will grow here. I don't know that it's the best yellow apple for this area, but typically red delicious requires over a thousand hours of chilling, and we rarely get that. But I'll be interested to see how yours performs long term. Yes, me too. Okay, and then uh, next thing, the California, those uh, uh, those bugs that were on, it, they came out on radar on the news channel. The really? News. Well, California yes. is where the ladybugs, so many of them, in fact, a lot of the people that sell ladybugs that you buy in the nurseries and places, they're apparently there in some of the foothills, some of the mountains, places that you can just literally go out and scoop them up by the gala. And that must have been what Howard was talking about, if there was a big enough swarm to show up on radar. And uh, I guess anything's possible. I've never heard of it before, but uh, that would be the place it would happen. Yes, it did. Okay, and like crepe myrtles, my uh-huh. next-door neighbor has four white ones, uh-huh. and they were they were so heavy with flowers that when it rained yep. this last couple of days, yep. they literally flattened down a couple of feet shorter. Oh, yep. How was yep. that? It's, and, uh, um, and, yeah, and I have a purple one, uh, uh, lavender, and uh-huh. I don't have one flower yet. Well, that's what we were talking about. It's just uh, some of them seem to have come out early. It certainly has not been uniform. I suspect as it gets a little hotter, a little brighter, you probably have Catawba or one of those. It's a real good purple. But uh, let me know when it starts flowering. It uh, uh, Probably, I guess, about two, three weeks would be a good time to expect it to have flowers if we continue with the long, sunny days. I hope so. I got a lot of little buds, but nothing's flowered. It'll... Okay, and then now I have a, a, a couple of questions. I bought some uh, flowers, some, some uh, berry 
plants, you know, some blackberries and some blueberries and, and uh, a couple of uh, Miranda Lambert's roses. Okay. And then some trees. All this stuff was on, on clearance, right? That's, when I, that's all I can afford to buy. But I started seeing a bunch of these. I thought they were like a parasite, but they're called hammerhead worms. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. They... Uh, is that something really bad? Well, they destroy some of our good insects and things. They're not going to harm your plants, but uh, they they do um, destroy some of the beneficial insects that we see out there, including earthworms. But um, gosh, I you know can't say really good, bad, or otherwise. And you're going to find some of your plants will do well. Blackberries are great here. Blueberries are a real challenge. Your roses, it'll just depend on what rootstock they're on. But I'm going to have to hold you there, Alfred, because I've got four other people I've got to get in here. Uh, Frank, good morning. Sorry. Frank. How's it going, Bob? It's going well. How about yourself? Oh, just messing around with these dogs out here. And Can you hear me pretty good, by the yes, way? Yes, sir. I hear you just fine. The guy at the phone place told me this was one of them intelligent phones, and I'm just wondering to see if it is. Well, so far, it's. Uh, it, it, I, I think all the phones, the intelligence is is the end of who's uh, who's using them. But uh, you're coming through loud and clear right now. How can I help you? All right. Well, first of all, we love your show. Thank you. Um, I have a friend of mine. He lives out on the Brazos River bottom, out in uh, close to College Station. Okay. And uh, we talk probably every other morning for breakfast. And uh, he has a Arizona cypress tree that's about 12 foot tall. Okay. And he's got a bunch of these little bag-like cocoons growing on the limbs. Yeah, they call them bagworms. Okay. And he's said the tree's already showing signs of, uh, you know, going down. It's already, the leaves are turning a different color on it. And I told him, uh, that it was probably under stress to begin with. Mm-hmm. That's why they came in on the scene. But what is your? Uh, I, I think you know, the the biggest problem is uh, is probably staying too wet. Arizona cypress likes well drained soil. Over in that part of the world, the soils do not drain well. Bagworms you can get rid of them with uh, BT, just like you can. Uh, you know, on a lot of other things, or some people just hand pick them. I've never seen them so thick. I thought that they would really impact the health of the tree, but I think what well, he showed me a picture of them, and they—it's like they have inundated this entire tree. Okay, and this isn't the first one. He said last year the similar situation occurred, and uh, it is in an irrigation ditch. Mm-hmm. Is where this tree was planted. Yeah. So I don't know why he did that. Don't ask me. But uh, and so if he can get rid of those uh, bagworms off of there, what's the prognosis? Probably five percent that it's going to live. Well, it, again, it, it'll depend on the moisture issue. Arizona cypress. Exactly. Uh, Arizona tells you where it likes to live, and uh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, it just it depends on what the rain does and what he does with moisture, but. Yeah, get rid of the bagworms. Uh, if we go into a dry period, then uh, it'll probably do just fine, but it's just not a real suitable plant for a real marshy area. Okay, well, I'll pass on the news to him and uh, give Hannah a hug when we get home. You know I will do it. 
<laughs> when I get All to the right, office. Buddy. Thank you so much, Frank. I appreciate it. All right. Just uh, finishing up the show on plants with uh, John and Cindy. Uh, Jim's in, and uh, it'll be time for the Home Improvement Show very shortly. But right now, still plants. Good morning, John. Morning, Bob. How are you? I'm good, sir. How about you? Soaking wet right now. It's too uh, hot. <laughs> and it's only going to get hotter. Yes, sir. I've got uh, two updates and one question. Okay. Uh, talked to you about a year ago. I had just bought a house, and I had an orange tree in the yard. And the first year, last year, it didn't have any fruit at all. None. Uh-huh. Had blooms all over the place. No fruit. Well, this year, I had the blooms like I did last year, and now I've got fruit setting already. Excellent. Very good. And uh, the other one was about the, uh, I had a, you had a caller earlier about the stump. Yeah. At my house, we cook outside a lot. I barbecue a lot. So all I would do, and this stump was old and rotten and everything, all I'd do is just, every time I got done with the barbecue pit, I'd uh-huh. take a little scoop of coals and put on the top of it, and it took about a month, maybe a month and a half, and that thing was gone. Well, that'll do it. And when you speed it up with using that potassium nitrate, it just makes it burn all that much better. So as uh, long as you're careful with it, it's a great way to get rid of a stump. So what question? The only, time I was working, the only time I'd do it is when I was working in the yard late in the afternoon. Perfect. Yes, perfect. Um, the other only question I have is I got it in the back of my mind, and I want to make sure. I was mowing the yard uh, Monday before the rain and everything started, and I noticed like two small little round areas, brown carpet grass. And that's, my yard is full of carpet grass. Last night we were sitting outside. I noticed June bugs. Yeah. Is it okay? I can spray the beneficials now? Yes, sir. And it's the perfect okay. time because the soil's moist. Uh, this is the absolute ideal time. Take care of grub worms, fleas, and fire ants all at the same time. But, yes, sir, I get those beneficial nematodes out as soon as you can. 10-4. One, last question. I fertilized back in uh, January, uh, March. Uh-huh. Um, now I want to put... Um, cornmeal out is that okay to just like substitute instead of the fertilizer no sir cornmeal uh you really don't have much reason to put out cornmeal now because the fungus that it controls is not active in the hot weather i just use another good application of organic fertilizer i I think you just uh i don't think there's really any need for the cornmeal to be money you don't need to spend but put out another round of the organic fertilizer whenever you get a chance john It'll be tomorrow afternoon. It'll be two bags of Medina Growing Green, and I appreciate it, and have a good day. You do the same, sir. Always good to hear from you. All right, let's uh, finish up with Cindy. Good morning, Cindy. Hey, good morning, Bob. Good morning. I I have a question about fertilizers for desert roses. Yes, um, yes ma'am. You know, dabbling a lot in it, and I'm, and I'm on websites that are people around the world, and they're using different things that I've never heard of. So I just want to ask you if you if you are familiar and if it's organic, if you know. Well, I would uh, I would just go with your has to grow or your spoma, or uh, I'm real happy with that new uh, Medina Liquid Fish product. That's uh, sure working well on my orchids and things. So, um, okay. you know, there there are lots of different things out there, but most of those are going to be synthetic fertilizers, which are not what I choose to use. Okay. Yeah. Well, this it. I mean, this just seems astronomical. It's um, called Pool BR61. That's an old, old product. I'm not even sure if they make it anymore. But, yeah, that was, uh, oh, back in the d- days of Greenlight Super Bloom, and it's uh, it's just a very high phosphorus synthetic fertilizer. Uh, I think you do a lot better with Hastagrow. Okay. And then Dynagrow? 
Dynagrow, there's a twelve six. Yeah, it's uh, it's a good fertilizer. It's expensive. Uh, it's got yeah. some organic stuff and some non-organic stuff. The guy that makes it, uh, Dave, somebody or other, we used to always call him Dynagrow Dyna Dave. And uh, oh. good, good fertilizer, but it's not organic. Okay. I, I I knew it couldn't be these things that people are talking about. But, yeah, I still use the, the liquid has to grow. And I do have, it, it's, I think it's Fox Farm some kind of fish emulsion yeah yeah they, they make some good products too and i use some of theirs most all of theirs are organic and espoma has a liquid organic out as well so those are all good choices Cindy, and i think your your desert roses will do very well with them okay all right well i just wanted to verify well Thank i appreciate so much. always good to hear your voice and uh we'll just talk again